46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Hunting Collective. I'm Ben O'Brien, and it's a good one. It's a very good one uh, here as April rounds out. Turkey season is, uh, in the West at least, in full swing. I am in the Black Hills of South Dakota with my good friend Sam Soholt. We are hunting turkeys. We are telling stories, and we are talking about turkey genitalia. Big news, some big news regarding turkey genitalia in this podcast. Um, so stay tuned for that. But we also tell you a little bit about our successful turkey hunt here in the Black Hills, his turkey tour, my turkey tour, his public land bus, and more. I'm also joined by Alex and Libby Metcalf. You'll hear more about them in the podcast. They're interesting folks. They're both professors uh, in the forestry department there at the University of Montana in Missoula. Uh, they, they do a lot of interesting things around uh, human interaction and behavior in regards to hunting. So we're going to learn a lot about that. It's a really interesting conversation, um, and I learned a lot. So I thank those guys, and you'll hear that very soon. But before we get to that, uh, we're going to talk to you about a new partner for the program, and that partner is, uh, it's really not new at all, but we're going to treat it as new because it's official. Uh, I want to welcome a new partner on the program, and that's Yeti. Uh, I used to call them, we used to say Yeti coolers, but now it's Yeti because they make so much more and just coolers. And I'm sure everyone listening to this, or most of you, will know that I was employed at one time by Yeti. And really, I owe a lot of where I am today, what I've been able to do with my life, and all the blessings I have to that company, uh, and to the people, like Roy and Ryan Cedars, who you've heard on this podcast previously. So you'll be hearing a lot from those guys um, on this podcast in the future. But I just want to let everyone know that they're, as we've announced other partners, when I announced them as an official partner of the podcast, and I'm very thankful for them. Again, um, have played a large part in um, marketing their products, but I believe even outside of that, even outside of being a part of the organization, I believe in their products. I believe in what they stand for. I believe in their films and their content, and most of all, their people. And so you'll be hearing, again, 
a lot more from them in the weeks and months to come. And I'm very lucky to have Yeti on board. So shout out to everybody down in Austin, Texas. So without further ado, let's get started. I guess I grew up on an older road. A pedal to the metal, always did what I told. Until I found out that my brand new clothes came secondhand from the rich kids next door. And I grew up fast, I guess I grew up mean. There's a thousand things inside my head I wish I ain't seen. And now I just wander through a real bad dream. Or feeling like I'm coming apart at the seams. But thank you, Jack Daniels. Oh, no, Hey, everyone. I'm Ben O'Brien. And it is 4 30 19. Man, April got away from us fast, but it's going to be another good show today. And I'm joined right now by my good friend, Sam Soholt, man of public land bus fame. Sam, it is what your third or fourth time on the podcast. Is that correct? Yeah, something like that. First in the new format. So welcome to, I mean, it's so different, right? I'm excited to be here. Yeah. You don't even, you don't even know what, you don't know what's happening right now. No, I don't. Um, as I like to start all these, describe, Sam, where we are currently. So we are in the Black Hills of South Dakota, chasing Merriam's turkeys. Uh, we're currently, a little bit more specific, we're currently sitting in my bus. Um, we've got a pot of coffee brewing. It's kind of spitting rain a little bit outside. A little afternoon shower is rolling in. and uh, But yeah, it's just been beautiful weather out here in the Black Hills and Everybody's been in turkeys and got a few on the ground already. Yeah. And yeah, it's only day two. This seemed to be a dead turkey. Yeah. I, I've really enjoyed turkey hunting and this spring has been a good one. Mm. I've been, uh, I think we were talking about this morning. This is, well, I left for the spring turkey tour on March 27th and today it is the 24th of April. So I am 24 days consecutively into my actual turkey hunting. And you need a nap. I need a nap. I'm completely exhausted. As evidence of your tour, I look across the bus here, and I guess what you'd call like the kitchen area. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't think this is up to code because there is a a number of turkey feet sticking out of like a sideboard in the bus. Probably, what, 10 feet at least? Yeah, I think sticking, there are five sets of feet in there. Yeah, sticking <laughs> creepily. Yeah, it's just the claws are sticking up there with all the tags on them. So it, <laughs> it's a little weird. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of nightmarish, but... That's fine. Yeah. I mean, the, and I, it was but, better than having, like, we got here and they were all just, like, tucked in a corner. And I was like, wow, I don't really want to leave a bunch of turkey feet just laying on the floor. So, no, it's nice. It shows you guys have had a good... A good damn tour and, and a good week this week. But before we get to, we're going to tell some turkey stories. In the interview portion of the show today, you're going to hear from Alex and Libby Metcalf, who are a couple of professors from the University of Montana there in uh, Missoula. And so we'll get to them in a second. They uh, aren't turkey hunters. Hopefully they listen to this. Maybe we'll convince them to go. Um, but we're going to tell some turkey stories. But first, we had a thing in the woods this morning where we were wondering something that I think every turkey hunter thinks they know about, but probably doesn't know much about. And Sam and I were trying to Google it with little to no service. And the Google, what we were Googling was turkey genitalia. <laughs> Which at like 6 a.m., like in the middle of the woods, is a weird thing to be looking up. That's just a weird thing to be talking about. <laughs> and recording yourself talking about turkey genitalia Yeah, is... Uh, 
is 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 not so great. But here we are. Um, we both decided that we didn't really know, and had never having dismembered many turkeys, had never really run into a turkey's penis in in our time uh, taking turkeys apart and hunting turkeys. We not, all not hunt once. the the turkey rut, as we'll call it. We all hunt the turkey rut. We're always doing that. But for whatever reason, we don't ever think about the actual act of mating. For we think about you know hens laying eggs and sitting in the nest, mm-hmm. but we don't ever really think about. At least that's my guess. A lot of people don't actually think about the act of mating for turkeys. Yeah, I would guess not very often. I mean, other than like setting up uh, decoys, which are my buddy who's a non-hunter described as turkey sex dolls. <laughs> <laughs> they are but very set- sexy. <laughs> but setting them up basically looking like a Tom or a Jake is a, about to breed a hen mm-hmm. or like, you know, close to breeding a hen. So that's usually what, in the context in which, we, in which we look at it. But yeah, now I haven't spent a lot of time in the past years thinking about how it actually all goes down. Yeah. And I said, you know, we may have seen videos of turkeys mating, but have never, have seen turkeys try to mate with my decoys Mm -hmm. i've never seen them doing their thing in the wild um and so i did a little i did a little research a little reading to educate everyone on you know following the courtship dance which we're very familiar with the act of mating and i'm going to read a little bit of this uh the male we go in you know you kind of can picture the male hopping on the female uh the tom hops on his lady kind of lets his wings down and gets ready for the thing. But the thing that I didn't know is that the sperm is transferred from the male's cloaca to the female's cloaca. So they both basically, uh, I have heard it described as like a general opening, which is an easier way than saying cloaca. But this says like the cloaca is a name for the vent that leads to the turkey's sex organs. So they put their cloacas together and that acts as a sort of a channel in which to... A conduit, Cop- copulate, a conduit for copulation. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the turkeys, they'll place their vents next to each other in order to allow the transfers of sperm. Um, so, does, so now we know. Mm-hmm. The more you know. The more you know. That little rainbow yeah. star thing. Yeah. <laughs> so all of you listening out there, you, uh, it's good. You have an understanding, a better understanding of, of turkey, turkey genitalia. sex. Turkey sex. That like started this- off weird. You know, I'd like to say you're welcome to the <laughs> listenership, but I don't think I think they we just forced this on them. They probably didn't. They probably didn't want it. Probably not. But I hope that they're I interested enough where it like really hooked them into it's listening to the rest land, of it. Public service. That's right. Now you know. Uh, so moving on, I, you're a, a South Dakota native. I am. So you've killed in your life many a turkey. So I, I mean, I've killed some turkeys, but I actually didn't start turkey hunting until 2012. Oh, it was wow. the first year. So I didn't grow up doing it. Um, never put in for tags. I just chased waterfowl and deer. And uh, yeah, it wasn't until quite recently that I got in, like, got way more into it. Well, and you're, and that's, and you've revved the engine being on a three week long turkey tour. Yes, going from that to that. Yeah. And so I've got this, seven years. Yeah, <laughs> doing this. I uh, got four more days here helping just shoot photos and helping guys get birds. And then I've got one uh, archery hunt in eastern South Dakota that I'm going to try to pull off. And then towards the end of May, I'm meeting up with the Vortex guys, the Hush guys, born and raised, and the hunting public. And we're all going to chase birds in Wisconsin for one well more done. one more grand finale on the year. Well done. Yeah, no, we're, uh, I'm on my own little tour. It's not quite as long as yours. Um, 
I don't have a bus and my wife would probably leave me if, if I went for that long. But uh, she knows I want to. <laughs> she knows I, if I could, I would. Um, this is, we did a little Texas and then took a tour break. Is it a tour if it takes a break? <laughs> uh, I think you can take a tour break. I don't know if you can consider it like, I feel like Texas was a trip and now you're on a tour. Oh. Like you did a... Like it was like a like a pre yeah pre tour yeah trip, I I give you that. Uh, did this hunt? I'm going to go back to Montana, hunt in eastern Montana, drive down to Idaho to do the BHA rendezvous. So if you're, um, well, if it, by the time you hear this, it's already over. So it was a great time. <laughs> I had a great <laughs> time. Um, and then we'll be about the time this airs, we'll be rolling over to Idaho to do a couple of days hunting. Well, I think the Hush guys will be in camp there with me and, and and possibly even Brian Callahan will make an appearance. And then I'll be rolling up to Oregon um, with Benchmade and Federal to do some running around and then back to Montana to hunt up in northern Montana, fill another tag, and then back to Bozeman. That's a pretty solid tour in a short period of time. It's a lot of miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's quite the quite the... It's like a hunt and then a long, like a 10-hour drive and then mm-hmm. a hunt and a 10-hour drive. But living in the West, I mean, you can I mean, you do it in the East too, but if you really want to have see some, you know, see the West, the Intermountain West, I mean, this is a damn good way to do it. For sure. And it, I mean, a really cool time of year to do it. Like everything's waking back up and I don't know. Like I love the fall because it's all hunting season, but there's something about spring that <clears throat> is just, yeah, just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. This time of year for sure. Yeah. How much uh, Black Hills history do you have in your head there? Any big? Not much. I grew up on the east side of the state. Oh, so this so, is like a like, different. Yeah. Like I've, you know, traveled out here for sports and uh, different trips or whatever, but never, uh, I don't know much about the Black Hills. I probably should know more. I learned that it was a, like it was named the Black Hills. So this is the Lakota tribe thought because there's so many pine trees on the hills that they look black. Mm-hmm. And that's why it was named the Black Hills. That makes sense. Uh, that's about as much as I got. Yeah. But it, and it was also, uh, Custer made uh, like a Black Hills. He made a, a big trip that was written about a lot here to the Black Hills, which popularized the area. And then, um, then the, the gold rush kind of found its way here. Mm-hmm. And, and for the preceding decades, it was very mining and mining centric, extraction mm-hmm. centric. But now it seems to be tourism centric. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for good reason. Yeah. It's just a really cool area. Uh, I mean, even though it's become, I mean, it's, it's still not that populated out here. I mean, there's, there's, um, there's a lot of room to roam and uh, a ton of public land out here. And just like, you know, like the amount of wildlife that you see, whether it be turkeys or deer or bison or elk or whatever. I mean, just on our drive to go hunt this morning, we oh, saw yeah. whitetail, mule deer, bison, elk, and then finally turkeys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not to call anybody out, but a member of your party that you've gathered here. You have a lot of people in camp. Mm-hmm. They're very popular. Um, member <laughs> of your party. We're not going to say who it was. Came back. It's not from, doesn't spend a lot of time out west. Yeah. It's a good hunter, but doesn't spend a lot of time out west. Came back and was like politely asking what bear shit looked like. Well, first he asked, are there bears out here? <laughs> and I That's said, a long way to get around. To yeah. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I mean, not a lot, but there are bears out here. <laughs> And he goes, ah, oh, I saw, I'm pretty sure we saw a bunch of bear shit. I was like, well, what? then you asked, you know, well, what did it look like? 
or was it pellets? I think. I was, yeah. You know, I said, well, yeah, bear shit. It's kind of, it looks a little bit like human shit. And mm-hmm. you know, you'll see a lot. You said something like you'll see a lot of berries. And I said, well, was it? He's like, yeah, but it didn't kind of look like that. I said, was it pellets? He's like, yeah, like big pellets. <laughs> that was definitely uh, elk. That's elk shit. <laughs> so, so they did run into a pile of elk, like a lot of elk shit. And so, they, yeah, there's yeah. a lot. I say all that to say there's a lot of elk out here. Yeah. Well, the best is that he asked another guy who's not from out west, and that guy told him that, that it was, was my bear. favorite part. <laughs> he was like, the dude I was with was like, oh, that's for sure bear shit. A hundred percent. A hundred percent bear shit. Yeah. I can't believe there's herds of bears. <laughs> <laughs> roaming the South Dakota hills. It's unbelievable. That's yeah, terrifying out here. The Black Hills National Forest. <laughs> Herds of bears. Yep. 12 deep. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you had a big camp out here. It's cool to be a part of. And we got to roam around the Black Hills National Forest. Now, um, we're not going to give any hot spots away. But I did ask Alex and Libby Metcalf to give some hot spots away at the end of the show. So you will get a hot spot. Uh, kind of a half-assed hot spot, but nonetheless, you'll get one. Um, but just describing how we approached this morning and how I approached just coming over here from Montana, literally just drove, looked at my Onyx maps, looked where it was green for national forest and drove around and got out where I thought turkeys might be and called, hiked, hiked in a little bit, called nothing there. Got, go back in the truck, drive a little more, cover a ton of country, glassing for birds, calling, trying to get a response. Um, and that's like, is as free as a hunter gets and you know, millions of acres here for us to traverse and little to no, you know, other than little small pockets of residential areas and, and private land and some other controlled access points. It was, we were free to roam. Yeah. So last year was my first year hunting turkeys in the black Hills and, uh, kind of was asking around, you know, like what are some good areas to go look and, uh, a buddy of mine was like, man, just everywhere. Like the turkeys are fairly evenly distributed throughout the hills. So he's like, if it looks like good turkey country, there's chances are there's turkeys in there. So just get out, call it like you said on your way in. You know, it's like if it looks Turk like like good turkey country, there's probably going to be a turkey, and they might not may or may not respond, but there's probably going to be some birds in there, and uh, it's a it's a good way to do it just to locate some yeah. some critters. Yeah, and I was thinking about. Um, you know, going to BHA rendezvous, being a part of that, both, you know, you're driving, you're, we're in the public land bus. Like we both, it is something that, you know, we both, and we're not alone, like care a whole lot about. That's like, you know, you'll, we'll tell the story of this bird we killed, but after the, we had killed this Turkey this morning, we had like a three hour session of just sitting in the national forest, drinking a beer, chopping up a Turkey, um, having lunch, listening to music, took a bullshit, nap, took a nap. It's like, and it was, we don't own that land. Like we, we didn't pay for it at least, except for with our taxes. Yeah. No, that was pretty amazing. It's, it's the idea that that's accessible is, um, still stuns me, even though it's something that I've devoted a lot of time and energy and a big part of my life to, it's still, it like brings me great joy and passion to know that that exists. And it's, it's every time that I do it, I feel that way. I think what always gets me is it's it's just hard for me when I start to really sit down and think about it, like how much land there is and how freely accessible it is. It's just hard for me to wrap my head around like like today we probably covered, let's say forty acres, mm. you know, maybe maybe forty to sixty acres of of ground. 
uh, there's 640 million acres of just federally managed land. So, like, just trying to wrap your head around like the how much exploring you can do, like without any cost other than you know a hunting license. But if you're just hiking or whatever, um, just being able to go out and use that as a as a resource is pretty amazing. Yeah, I can't like that idea. You know, and again, I was texting with Lance Hunter from BHA this morning. I just want—I was like, dude, I just want to tell you that that idea above politics, above all of all our disagreements around the government and its workings, like above that, like there's nothing that I've experienced. The combination of hunting, which I love, with the freedom of running around in a place that you contribute to and also benefit from in a way that is indescribable for me if somebody's never experienced it is just, like I said, every time that I do it, I get something else from it. it never gets old, ever. It doesn't matter where I am. Turkeys, elk, deer, squirrels, doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Um, and it's great. It's great. Yeah, uh, it's and it's raining outside. It you is. You hear that. Last yep. time you were on the bus, I think for the podcast it was raining, weren't you? It was. We were actually in the Black South Hills. South Dakota. Yeah. In the Black Hills. We were uh um Actually, you know, I think I was on one in Big Sky, but the one previous we were in the, we were in the Black Hills and it was pouring and there was flooding in the in the awning. <laughs> in the awning of the public <laughs> land bus. That um, was it was uh crazy. Well, we're gonna get to uh the interview portion of the show here in a minute, but we're also going to t- tell you this story of this turkey we killed this morning. Um I've been here, I rolled in last night. Like I said, just just rolling through, stopped, got my license, got my tag, made sure all that was square. Came rolling through the Black Hills, literally just driving around, calling. Found a found a bird, roosted them. There's a couple, like two or three gobblers and, and a group of hens that I had roosted. Marked them on the old Onyx maps. Came back here, had some beers, had a little food. Went to sleep, slept for about three three damn hours. Got up at three thirty, pulled out of here at four a.m. Rolled over to our spot, and they were exactly where we left them. And I thought. Uh, you can tell me, Sam, but I thought we were in the money. Yeah, I mean, looking at the map and everything, it seemed like we were, seemed like we were in the right spot, like a crossroad between like a little two track trail and a, a cut through the timber. So it was like a good area for them to pitch down to and strut down. Yeah, it was the it was the cross section of um, a little trail and then a power line, mm-hmm. and so we were kind of right at the X of that. So we put our decoys out. We were, you know, like I said, a couple hundred yards from the roost tree. They were hammering on the roost. Um, we had them responding a little bit as they were starting to fly down, and they hit the ground. And uh, they didn't. Rem- they weren't totally quiet when they hit the ground, but they certainly didn't fly in our direction. They f- they pitched off away from us to a bench that we later discovered that was I uh, would have been to our north. You know, they and then they're gobbling instead of two hundred yards away, probably three three fifty four hundred yards away. Which, if you're a turkey hunter, it you understand that disappointment. Like you're, you go to sleep thinking about having them the pitch off, see the decoys come running in and you crack them. Yeah. I mean like the, the textbook hunt is you just get in tight under the roost and they just fly on down right to you. And bam. Yeah. You had one where you, it's a feet I, barely hit the ground. I didn't even have any decoys out <clears throat> and he, yeah, he pitched down. This was last Wednesday. Yeah. A week ago. Um, yeah, pitched down, and he had not even slowed down yet from his like landing run, and I shot him. So that hunt lasted from 
about five seconds from fly down to flopping. <laughs> <laughs> we did pretty good today, but we're not, we're not that lucky. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they pitched off to the north to which later, like both seeing it in person and then looking at the map, they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. They should be that. That's a good. That's where they would fly. Yes. You know? Yeah, now you know that's again the the disadvantage to not knowing the terrain in the country. If we had hunted those birds for a couple of days, or or hunted this area, we would have kind of seen that country and known. Hey, when they pitch off, they're going to pitch to this bench, and then from that bench they can access this little field. It's a little private, like a private. So we were kind of like buttoned up against this piece of private, where there was we thought either like a water trough or a feeder or something that the turkeys like to hit. And so you know, my thought in the morning was they're going to you know either fly that way or pitch down to this power line and access this anywhere they want to go from this, this area. So they, uh, they pitched down and we decided to go up on the ridge above them. And you tell them why, why do you think that getting above turkeys and this, this mountain, this, this mountainous terrain is a, is a big deal. So if you, if you can get above the turkeys, it's a lot easier to call them in and and actually, I just learned this this year because I've never hunted. I mean, other than last year hunting out here a little bit, but just kind of winging it. But hanging out with the guys from the hunting public and and hunting, a, you know, mountainous areas like Arkansas and um, some more hilly terrain down in Tennessee. Um, just like Aaron Warburton, I hunted with him a lot for those first two weeks. And he just kept kind of driving into my head that if you're going to go try to call in a turkey in hilly terrain, you want to try to get above them. Because if they're having to come up over a rise, they're going to come further in searching because if they if you get downhill of them and try to call them in turkeys have such good eyesight that when they're coming down in like if you have decoys it's one thing but still like they're way that the yeah their eyesight's so good that they're easily going to see what's going on ahead of them way further so if you can kind of take away some of their advantage and get above them they'll come marching right up to you yeah man i think it it makes all the sense in the world and and having hunted turkeys i mean you've done it in the last three weeks but you hunt turkeys and all these different you see how they use terrain you kind of learn to read where they're going to go and i think both of us kind of today made a bunch of really good calls about like this is where they're going to go let's set up here they're going to want to use this spine to come to access this open spot if we put the decoys here they'll see them first Mm -hmm. pull them in and it's 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 good to know like when you make that guess right and then the turkey does what it needs to do then the turkey dies <laughs> right what we did was make a lot of right guesses it's, a, it's a, yeah, the, the turkey's fault yeah i blame them it's anytime it goes wrong it's always their fault they would have been where they were supposed to be we would have been just fine yeah because then when we yeah when we looped up to get above them both of us were looking at the map and looking down and saw the bench where eventually we spotted them but we were looking at that like oh let's get to that bench and set up and call yeah. again because like they're they're going to use it that whole all those ridges were all scratched up i mean tons of turkey sign in that whole thing so assuming that that flock of turkeys was just bouncing around in there day after day using yeah. using that area yeah and it was it, it, really i thought it was a kind of a micro area that they were running in and they had they had they had it circle like a nascar race i mean it, it just looked kind of like they were just using the same kind of three fingers of the ridge to travel and so yeah, I mean, we looked and like, if we can just get down to near that bench, they're going to either end up there or come off the field and hit us. If we call, we'll call them in. Well, we got, oh, maybe 100 yards above that bench, and I'd set my shotgun down to get the call out to hit it to see um, if we get them to respond, and i look up, and there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out, 
uh, they were all hanging out on that exact bench. They were exactly where we <laughs> thought they were. Yep. They just were there too soon. Yes. And so it is their fault. Yeah. It's their fault we didn't kill. Some but. may also say that we were there too late. Those people would be wrong. Yeah. They weren't there. <laughs> they didn't. It's up to us to decide. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. We just, it's, you know, if you're, if you're a veteran turkey hunter, you understand this scenario. It's like the run and gun, the sit and get type of attitude like you could know that bench is great and get 500 yards from it and sit and just call for the next three hours or you could bump up in there get tight with them and if you're going to bump around and get tight with them you know you're going to spook them every once in a while and for us too you know we didn't know it we had those birds like we had all day to hunt and we knew where those birds were and so if, if we you know knowing and you wake up if we squeak those birds it literally is starting over again like we weren't even here so we did exactly that <laughs> <laughs> and yeah we, we accomplished all that by 620 and i gotta say <laughs> shout out you know shout out to mike and ikes yes not a sponsor no but i mean hit, hit came me up in mike clutch. And ikes. Yeah. yeah came in clutch. came in clutch we ate we drowned our sorrows in an entire box of fucking mike and ikes i mean i'm a snack guy for sure and so I always have something in my yeah. bag. And after we buggered those turkeys up, we just sat down on the hillside and shared a box, a whole box, <laughs> whole shareable size box of Six Mike and forty-five a.m. <laughs> That's good. It's good to get that going. That's turkey hunting for you, folks. <laughs> That's turkey hunting for you. Now I want to make us a detour to something that we also another thing that we discovered, and and this this we can call this segment not a sponsor. That's the segment. We had what I'll call a revelation while we after we shot this turkey and we were having a meal we discovered oh, this thing yeah. called o meals yeah o meals tell people about o meals again not a sponsor but get, if you're listening o meals bring it on yeah because you're having a fantastic product yeah it was pretty amazing like i didn't believe it at first <laughs> so you <clears throat> it comes it looks like a you know any other freeze-dried meal package except when you open it up there's a heating element in a little bag there's the food in a little bag and then obviously the bag that you cook it in. And so you open the heating element, you slip it into the bag with the food pouch, and then you pour in three to five ounces of any liquid, it said. Uh, basically, it just needs to boil the liquid, but then the heating element activates and in three to five minutes, yeah. you have... It's like a little hot yeah, hand. It takes a little there. bit for that heating element to get activated and we learned that because we cooked two of them. Uh, but once that gets going, that water is boiling and steaming in seconds and then yeah a little bit later you have hot food hot food no boiling water sorry jet boil yeah i mean well if you sponsor we'll go back to you jet boil <laughs> but oatmeal's man yeah that's pretty slick it's pretty delicious yeah. it saves any uh, any work on heating up water you sit there and watch the little bag gyrate yeah until your hash browns are done and it's quite a bit less water uh like you know usually you're like on a on a normal freeze-dried meal, you're going to use a, whatever, it's like two cups or, you know, it's, it's whatever, 12 to 14 ounces of water instead of three to five. Sure. That's yep. true. But yeah, I mean, I think um, that's one of the things I take away from this hunt is O-meals. So shout out. Thanks, O-meals. Might have to send them a message. That's pretty... <laughs> say, yeah. yeah. Life on the road. Life on the road. Yeah. O-meals. I felt like, well, I felt very like accomplished. Like we were like I had achieved something when I had cooked my Southwest rice and chicken yeah, meal. 
I just felt um, less hungry when I ate the hash browns. Yeah. A little salt. I had a little, little twitch in my left eye from the salt. Yeah. But other than that, I felt, I felt real good. All right. Back to all our right. turkey story. Yeah. It's like a non-linear turkey story that we're going That's all right. Here. It's like we'll just drag people along. It's like the show This Is Us. You ever seen that show? Mm-mm. Uh, that's not. Okay. Well, we'll just keep moving <laughs> on. If you've seen it, you know what's up. Um, so we, we boogered the turkeys and we decided that it's not worth sticking around jacking with turkeys that have already putted at us and give it, given us the, the business. Yeah. The good news is those birds, like we did hear them gobble again about 10 minutes later, way down the ridge. And, but we still decided just to, to bail out of there, um, let them calm down and then possibly circle back around into that area and try to That's call right. something in. That's right. Um, and so we got in the truck and we just started covering terrain. Like we just knew that West and like basically Southwest was a giant chunk of, uh, national forest that we could traverse pretty openly there was a lot of logging roads and two tracks and things we could get on so we found one we looked like looked nice and got going on it and not too too far from that we were rolling around a corner and spotted a tom up on this little you know ridge above a grassy meadow and he just kind of saw the truck and slowly meandered his way up into the timber and we parked the truck got out and again tried to get above him right so we're going you know. Yeah, so we pulled up the map, and where he had gone up into the timber was a little drainage that kind of basically arced up the side of this hill that you know would probably climbed about 200 feet or 150 feet vertical. But there was a drainage that went up, and it was like kind of like broken meadows all the way up. And so we yeah drove the truck around, parked, and then basically went straight to the top and had looked at the map and saw that there was a bench, a nice like gradual like ridge at the top that led to that drainage. And if we could get to that area, we should be able to probably get them to answer and come up that drainage. Yeah, we did. And we set up and what the hell happened? Well, we called and immediately stupid turkeys. Well, yeah, but there were three of them. So we only saw the one, but we called and three different Toms answered. And we were like, well, that's a pretty good sign. Like, you know, because they're going to battle for, coming into no, we position knew there like when i sat down and heard that i mean we didn't set the decoys up you know we heard three gobbles went around the corner like hey let's get in an open area on kind of the flat spot where these spines of these ridges will come up and meet it so if they're going to travel on the spine to get up here they're going to see these decoys come mm-hmm. across this flat and we're going to be in the money and it wasn't i mean we sat the decoys out and maybe got i didn't even really have time to put gloves on or do anything i mean it was you know 100 yards 75 yards there's a bird goblin and it didn't even really do a ton of calling. Sam was working the old pot and peg, the old slate call. And didn't even do a ton of that. And this in the first burger, the one we'd seen in the road was in on us within, you know, five minutes probably yeah, real of, fast. of setting up. And he it was it was picture perfect. I mean he came across this open this open bench, strutting, spitting, drumming, giving the full full show. Comes out of strut. At about 65 yards, there's a little opening where him and I kind of, he could see me and I could see him pretty clearly. I don't know if he saw me or not. Um, if he did see me, he didn't react like he saw a human. Like he just, he just came around the corner and took a couple of looks around and looked like he was looking past Sam, like to Sam's right and saw something he didn't like Some in some part of his scanning of, of, the, of what he was stepping into and just putted once or twice and just turned around and kind of meandered away. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I he just like, kind of worked around the backside of that knob and then gobbled going away. Yeah. 
See ya. Yeah. Peace. And so we thought, well, we didn't really spook him. He just was wary of, of coming any further. So let's work our way around the ridge, see if we can get in front of him and stay above him and work, get him to work back up this ridge at us. Yeah. And this is a good tip for any of you out there where if you have a bird come in and he kind of like doesn't quite commit, uh, like let him move off and then get back around to where he was gobbling and strutting coming in and then call again. Because yeah. a lot of times they'll think that a hand was trying to come to meet him and all of a sudden there's a hand back where they wanted to be in the first place. Yep. So get to where that turkey wants to be. Yep. So yeah, we just kind of stayed on the backside of the ridge and worked down to a different open area about 200 yards, 150 yards away. Yeah, and just and we were just milling around. I'm like, hey, hit the call and let's see, see where he is. Hit the call and a different bird is now it's maybe a less than 100 yards away that time. Yeah. So like quickly chunk the decoy, just just put a hen down because I'm thinking, well, this last bird might have gotten flared by the Jake decoy. Let's just put a hen out as to not have anything really other than that sexy, sexy hen there. Um, and let's get set up. And I get back, you know, probably 30 yards from the decoy, get set down. You are off to my left. And now the turkey, like this is not the turkey we were, were planning to hunt. And where he's coming or he's gobbling from, I think he's going to be in between you and I yeah. or come right to you. Yeah. And now we've got trouble. Because yeah, well, originally I had set up to call, like to think that we were going to call him back basically from the line that the first turkey took. But now he's looped around, basically walked past where we were sitting originally and is coming to my call. So I was on the backside of the tree. But yeah, I was pretty worried that he was going to come between me and you and that shotgun. Yeah. So I was, I couldn't, where I was, I couldn't see you. Or at least I, when I was looking, trying to scan for the turkey and scan for you, I'm like, I knew the tree you were under, but I was like, he's going to have to be from 12 o'clock to 6 o'clock for me to shoot him. I'm mm-hmm. not going to shoot him from 6 to, to 12. Like, yeah. I'm just going to kind of cut this in a pie because I'm not going to. Yeah. I like Sam more. Than <laughs> I want to kill a turkey. I don't want to shoot him. So a little bit of a sticky situation there, but he came around perfect. I mean, he came right. I mean, he came right at my like 1 o'clock and came in and I saw him at like, 70 yards i shifted a little bit got set up and here again this turkey comes into about 60 yards 55 yards and just hangs up and he didn't even i mean it was very similar to the one before him hung up i don't we don't know why they were hanging up like there's no yeah we're assuming i mean not as i mean it could have been a lot of things but um guessing that somebody's been in there messing with those birds with the decoy or or something you know and, and trying to trying to get in on them and they've seen that yeah, and then there's before. something in our setup that they're seeing. I was shooting a, a Weatherby, eight, the new Weatherby 18i, and it's not the synthetic version because we'll just blame this on Ryan Callahan. He took my <laughs> synthetic version. Um, so there's a little shininess we'll to it. We'll just get out the spray paint for yeah. your next time. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> sure Weatherby guys. I'm sure they would appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they would like that. But it's a, f- a fantastic shotgun. It got the job done. Um, so we're not sure what these two birds saw, but this guy, I mean, I'm playing the last instance in my head not even knowing at this point i didn't even know which bird this was i thought this might be the same turkey um from the first time so i'm thinking he's doing it again mm-hmm. and so he gets to about 55 and starts to peel off and he he's facing away from me now and i got a clear open shot i'm like well if he stops within the next five yards i'm gonna kill him and he stopped perfect you know quartering away just put it on his head and boom it was, i didn't hit him in the head but I hit him, I crippled him, 
and he took a th- few flops and just kind of laid down. He would have been, he was dead on arrival. Yeah. And I put another shot in him and he was done. And then we celebrated. We celebrated. <laughs> and he's like, there's something. You said this even when we were going up this hill to kind of get into this situation. It's like, like I fucking love this, man. Like, I love <laughs> this. Yeah, I love this so much. I don't know why it's, it's so the, much fun. It's the cat and mouse. Like, it's the cat and mouse game yeah. that you play. Knowing that this is like a twenty-pound raptor that sleeps in trees, you look at its feet. It's like you're chasing a dinosaur. Uh, it has, the, you know, now we know all about its cloaca and the mysterious <laughs> sexual intercourse that they have. But it, there's something about it: the time of year, the way that you, you know, are playing this game with a turkey. Like you're talking to it. Yeah. You're, you are literally convincing it of something that is is untrue. Like. You are, you are setting a narrative for the turkey, mm-hmm. and so I had the same feeling as you. It's just like electric. Yeah, you just, you are electric, electrified by what's going on, and it, the experience is. Um, and it's just it, yeah, it's so interactive. And when you get a bird in close and they gobble like within whatever fifty sixty yards, like it just like whatever that sound is that they emit, like whatever frequency, it's like one of those like just like you can feel it in your heart. Like yeah. it hits so hard. Yeah. Yeah, and it, there's nothing like it, I don't think. I think elk is, of course. <laughs> is, you can't I, really compare it. A lot of people them. say like turkey hunting is just like elk hunting, but it's no, no it's no. not. Yes, you're calling an animal in, but it's not the same thing. Not the same. Not at all. And it's just a different time of year. The na- the natural world is just it's coming alive. It's just a different function um, for a hunter. And I, I wouldn't say one's better than the other, but goddamn, I love turkey hunting. It would be hard for me to sit here and say that I love elk hunting as much, if not more. I, I think they're probably on the same plane, but whatever. I mean, it doesn't really matter. No. The point is, if you're not turkey hunting, a lot of people in the West, now that I live in the West, will say, like, it's bear season. Like, listen, man. No, it's not. It's turkey <laughs> season. You can, As soon as you fill your turkey tax, then you can bear hunt. That's how it should always be. So let it be written. Speaking of bear seasons and turkey seasons, um, Colorado does not have a spring bear season. And last year, my older brother was turkey hunting and they put a bird to roost, went in there in the morning, bird flew down and they started calling to him. Had this big Tom on a rope coming in. Uh, The hunt got busted up because they called in a black bear with their turkey calls. Yeah. (laughs) Scared it off. Yes. So, yeah. Steve Rinella has a story about that exact same thing, realizing he was doing, like, he was hunting the same thing that mm-hmm. the bear was hunting and having like some, some revelation because of a, an understanding of the predatory behaviors. But yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a cool spot. I'm doing the one, the one day wonder. <laughs> yeah. I am now leaving to go back to Montana to try to kill another bird before I have to go back home and then hit up the BHA rendezvous. So I'm doing, I would say what, what I would refer to as a dick move. Nah. Just coming into camp, <laughs> eating all your food. I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you this time. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate uh, I appreciate you riding, riding along, and um, go follow Sammy at Sam Soholt. You'll see all kinds of stuff. Public Land Tees. Go there. They they actually have turkey T shirts there. We do. Which, other than the meat eater, no one else in the world makes a good turkey T shirt. I'm glad I. We were talking. I'm about glad the, I'm like right on par with. Yeah. With, no. <laughs> I mean, go buy meat eater stuff first. Sure. And then yeah. public land tea so I don't but, get in trouble with my bosses. Yeah. 
You got to say that. But all spring, I got to say that. Yeah, all spring, um, any turkey shirt sold were given five dollars to the National Wild Turkey Federation. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And like I said, there's not a whole lot of turkey. There's not a lot of like what I would call new school turkey gear out there. Yeah. Um, that you could feel real proud in. I think the public land tees, you can. Absolutely. That's what I think. Yeah, that's the way I feel about it. Sam didn't even ask me to say that. No, People I say didn't. like, oh, you came on there to promote oh, t-shirts. Sponsored. He didn't. No. <laughs> no, he didn't. I like him. So yep. I happen to be wearing one In your currently. face. Yep. People listening. <laughs> <laughs> so go buy a t-shirt. I appreciate it in advance. That'd be cool. And so does turkeys. So do turkeys and so does the NWTF. Yep. So do I. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside, staring at screens, and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, Steve here. I want to talk about something crucial for any outdoor enthusiast, which is battery reliability. I've got interstate batteries powering my gear. I have interstate batteries in my camper. I run an interstate battery in my boats. I use interstate batteries because the last thing I want is to be left powerless. Interstate batteries isn't just another battery company. They are outrageously dependable. In Alaska, the boat dealer that we use for getting stuff and repairs, he uses Interstate. Whether you're gearing up for hunting season, planning your next RV trip, or getting your boat ready, Interstate has the battery for all your needs. With over 150,000 dealer locations, the power you need is always nearby. Interstate batteries aren't just about power. It's about being prepared for any situation. Don't let a dead battery ruin your adventure. Head over to interstatebatteries.com, use their store locator, and equip yourself with a battery that won't let you down. When you're out in the wild or just on your daily commute, an interstate battery is your key to a dependable journey. Um, All right, we're going to get into the interview portion of the program. And now we're going to take a hard left at turkey hunting. We're going to move into um, some of the social sciences and the human interaction uh, with hunting and wildlife. Now, Alex and Louis Metcalf are our interview guests today, and they are professors at the University of Montana in Missoula. Am I saying that right? Is that the University of Montana in Missoula? Yes. I get confused. I'm new. Yeah. Is that right? Okay, I got that right. So I went over there um, a couple of days ago, and I right before I came here, and 
I got to meet with some of their students, some of their BHA uh, club students there at the university, and they blew me away. They absolutely blew me away. Um, you know, shout out to, to Mateen and Hannah and a bunch of the other people that I met that are doing things uh, in their college years that I didn't do. Sam and I probably were running around being adolescent idiots at the time. You know, I'm speaking for you, Sam. That's fine. I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely was. I speak for myself on that one. Um, I definitely was. And I wasn't thinking in a broad context like these guys. Um, Not Craig, even close. Yeah, like talking to this guy, Craig Martin, who's the president of that, the, the chapter over there for BHA. I mean, the way that they think, they, they talk about sustainability. They talk about harvesting animals. They talk about mentoring new hunters. They have a, a hunting for sustainability uh, event that they put on. They have a bunch of mentorship programs that they put on. Um, it was, it was I, I, I wish that I had more time to podcast with them and also their professors so, so everyone here could learn um, about the way that they see the world at the, uh, at the stage that, that they are in it because um, it is unique. And I, was, I will say, hopefully they listen to this at some point, but, but personally for those folks, I was inspired by what you guys had to say um, and by your passion for the outdoors and public lands and wildlife and the way that you look at those things. I, it, I will do anything I can to help foster that. Um, and I think, you know, Montana is lucky to have these young people that, were, that are there at the University of Montana. So thank you for that, um, guys and gals. Um, and then I sat down right after that, I sat down with their professors, Alex and Libby Metcalf. And it's, it's an interesting conversation. It goes to the social sciences and the way that you use, uh, social studies to build data sets to kind of tell, um, either they, they work with state agencies and they're also just working on an academic level to tell folks the motivation of hunters and how they interact with wildlife. So there's some interesting stuff there. It, I will tell you after thinking and listening back to the interview, it's a complicated thing to understand. It's, it's not as simple as here's the data, here's the results. Um, and so you may find it to be a twisting and turning tale, but hopefully you'll listen to Alex and listen to, to Libby and learn a little bit about what they do because it is very important in my opinion. So without further ado, we will travel back in time to Missoula, Montana, where we'll see Alex and Libby Metcalf. Alex and Libby, how are you? Great. Yeah, good to be here. Good to be here. It's good to be here. I always like to do this, like like to break the ice here by having you guys describe the surroundings. And so people won't, they won't be able to see where we are. It's very, very mysterious. So Alex, you want to kind of describe where we are in the, in the micro and macro sense sure. of the word? Yeah, I mean, we invited you specifically to this room and not our offices because this is a much better <laughs> setting. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we're here in, uh, you know, Missoula, Montana. It's a beautiful day. Uh, blue skies. Looking out at Mount Jumbo at Main Hall here. We're sitting in the, in the forestry building, which is a pretty historic place on campus. Um, the college here has been around for over 100 years and founded right here. Um, and we're up here on the third floor, um, right outside the wildlife biology main office. And we're sitting in the conference room with uh, a wall of black dissertations that are all extremely important. Uh, and <laughs> a lot of words. A lot of words. <laughs> um, and then, of course, above the d- dissertations, um, 
we have uh, a few of our uh, native species here um, in stuffed form. Yeah. Yeah. That's, when I went to college, there wasn't any taxidermy. Yeah. But I'm very jealous. Yeah. We, I mean, we, you know, being younger professors, our, our taxidermy is, is coming along. We're working on the collection, but uh, they have a better one in this room for <laughs> sure. It's pretty good. Yeah. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Libby, um, tell us about yourself. And your relationship to Alex, too, so people know all about that. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Alex is my spouse. He's my, uh, my partner and uh, also a faculty member here with me at the University of Montana. And I'm an associate professor in the Department of Society and Conservation. And I have kind of, I sit on a couple different curricular programs, but uh, I direct our Parks, Tourism, and Recreation Management Program. But I'm also part of the wildlife biology program, which is the number one wildlife biology program in the nation. Oh, got to mention it. Got to yeah, mention it yeah. here in the College of Forestry. We'll add a sound effect, like yeah. a ding. Ding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I, um, I've spent the last decade here in Montana uh, thinking about wildlife and how humans and wildlife interact. And I've done it from a couple different perspectives. Um, uh, my Probably my most notable work in the human dimensions of wildlife field is probably my work on gender and hunting. Yeah. And so I've been thinking a lot about how we engage women in the sport and which is kind of cool. Yeah. We were talking to one of your students, Hannah earlier, and she was explaining like a graduate student, I believe I was correct. Um, and she was explaining kind of her, the, the thing that struck me was, was her interaction in like sportsman's warehouse from when she goes to a, mm. something I had not thought of when she goes to a big box store or really any gun store or hunting store and she's with a male counterpart, whether it's her boyfriend or just a friend or whomever that the, the salesperson would, would talk to her, would talk to the, the male and like never even give her any eye contact, even if she asked the question. Yeah. Um, that's not something I had considered before talking to her. So it, and I expressed her, listen, I understand that we need to, we need to get across this gap and we need to do better than pandering to women hunters and outdoorsmen with pink things and then and the way that we've the tropes that we have <laughs> devised to kind of to do that currently but that certainly her comment got like really fired me up on on that subject so i'm started excited to talk about that yeah alex kind of run us through you know in your professional career what you are up to yeah here. so um Let's see. I followed Libby around. Um, no, I, yeah. So I, uh, we both did our grad work at Penn state. Um, we were in different programs there. Libby was in recreation, parks and tourism, uh, there. I have to learn all the different acronyms for PTRM, <laughs> RPTM. Yeah. Uh, but I was over in the forestry, uh, program at, at Penn state, um, and was thinking more about private land conservation, specifically like forest landowners back East. Um, but you don't talk to landowners very long before you end up talking about wildlife. Yeah. Um, and so coming, coming West, um, you know, the wildlife conversation definitely blew up. And I think, you know, the wildlife biology program here recognized that they have obviously just amazing depth in the biology. Um, but that as you look around the state and the country and the world, um, you know, a lot of the problems that we have um, with wildlife center around people. Yeah. Um, the answers aren't going to come from the biology. And so, yeah, so as we came here, um, you know, me and the resource conservation program and Libyan recreation, um, you know, our interest in wildlife grew and kind of their interest in incorporating the human dimensions grew. And so we were able to join the faculty 
goodness, five Four, or six five years, years ago, maybe, something like so. that. Wow. Yeah. And um, how many students do you interact with, you know, on a, a semester basis? I'm trying to get my college lingo back. That's been a while. Yeah. So it depends on the semester for sure. For me, I teach um, our large introductory kind of introduction to natural resource conservation course. It's about 120 students in there, mostly freshmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a big lecturer hall. Uh, the potential for sleeping is high. Uh, so I have abandoned PowerPoint and I wander the, the room. <laughs> you really? I, oh yeah. And oh. I draw on the board. Like and a taser. I, yeah. And I like raise my voice at random intervals. Yeah. Um, and so I interact with a lot of those students, um, you know, through the fall and it's kind of the, just the beginning of their career here. So it's really fun. They're, they're excited to be here. They want to change the world. Um, and I get to kind of be a part of that, uh, yeah. optimism. Um, and then that same semester, I generally teach a graduate theory course on kind of human dimensions that we, Libby and I, swap back and forth on. Yeah. Um, and there's generally 15 or so grad students in there. And then on, in the spring semester, I teach a course on collaboration. Um, and I have somewhere between 40 and 50 uh, undergrads in right. there. And then we've got our lab um, that, uh, you know, depending on the year, we have five to eight yeah five to eight grad students in there either masters or phd working on there and we we like a lot of professors here we run a pretty intimate lab where we're meeting one-on-one with those students um probably not as frequently as they would like but as frequently as as we can um you know on a weekly or bi-weekly basis to really work on on their particular project got it so yeah a lot hundreds yeah hundreds (laughs) and we i was asking libby this before we came on um, like you said, there, there's a lot of important work that goes on in the wildlife sciences in this building. And, and, but for, for a conversation as relatively short as this would be to kind of microwave all this into something that we want to really want to cover and talk about what's important for people to know. I'm going to give Libby a chance to set it up <laughs> it's, it, in, a, in a broad sense with what you guys work on with all the, you know, I read a lot of the papers and I've, I've looked at kind of how you explain what you do. And it's not just like chef or driver. It, it, yeah. it, it has more nuance to it, I imagine. <laughs> so Libby, with all that said, give us, a, give us a rundown of kind of how you guys think about the world and what you try to achieve here. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I'll try not to screw it up. Um, there's no wrong answer. There's no wrong answer. Did you guys ever tell your students no wrong answer? <laughs> yeah, mm, except, that's not true. Except when there yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> except when it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody gets a trophy. Okay. Um, yeah, we are, uh, our interests are, we're social scientists and we study people and we have the benefit of studying people in really cool natural places. And so, our kind of the thread that weaves between our research and the work we do here in our different programs is uh, how we incorporate social science into decision-making processes for natural resources. And so that whether that's wildlife and thinking about how we integrate the science to understand how a community might tolerate a certain species or how we think about different management actions that are coming out from state agencies or all the way through to um, kind of our three efforts and how we use data and science to kind of inform our initiatives and where we should be directing um, efforts in the state. And so we're really interested in kind of that, incorporating that social science into that natural resource decision-making process. Yeah. What what brought you to that? I mean, a little bit learned of, of what you currently do and, and maybe what brought you to this place, but what brought you personally to, to those interests? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, 
I, you know, I always think about like, people always ask me how I got in, interested in studying gender and hunting. And I did my master's at West Virginia University. And prior to going to WVU, I really was not interested in hunting at all. It was not an activity I wanted to do. It was not an interest of mine. And starting to work in West Virginia and work with some of the local leaders and some of the locals on the ground, I started to understand how hunting was a critical part of the social fiber of that community. And in particular, how frequently women were out hunting and uh, just starting to understand the different motivations that women had. And one of the things I noticed was um, just obviously the, the bringing game home, game meat home to their families to support the livelihood of those families. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that stuck with me in my master's and then transferring up to Penn State, I had an opportunity to kind of explore that a little bit more. And so I just started to uh, really think about how hunting as a recreation activity and how um, uh, women engaged in that sport and how our decision makers were not really thinking or considering that particular group or segment of the population. And so that really inspired kind of my dissertation work. And from there, it, I just, I fell in love with thinking about wildlife. Um, and, you know, it, I have like the anecdotal kind of st like, you know, reading um, certain books like Prodigal Summer or, uh, you know, some of the kind of more popular media books that talked a lot about carnivores or talked about predators and the yeah. relationship to animals and humans and just being totally romanticized by that. And uh, when we, you know, I, the call came out to work at University of Montana and I was like, oh, I think I'm going to put my name in for yeah. that one. <laughs> as far as the wildlife resource department goes, yeah. they got a lot of them. That's exactly right. <laughs> and so it just, it just kind of, it just developed from there. And um, what we found when we got here to UM and in the state is that our state agencies, our colleagues that we're working with across campus were uh, really just interested in how we use this social science to make decisions. And so we were able to translate a lot of the theories and the ideas that we've been practicing uh, through graduate work and, and actually apply those into a lot of real world settings out here. Cool. Well, give me, well, the first thing that comes to your mind is the application of those theories. Give me the best example. That's a great question. Um, and so, <laughs> this is the part they edit out. So yeah. yeah, like hemming and hawing. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's the way that you get to the answer. You're like, you know, that's a wonderful question. <laughs> While I'm thinking I'll, about I'll, I will, I will uh, refer back to this often during this conversation, but I just met with some of your students, of BHA members, and, and I've, every question they asked me, I replied with, great question. Great question. <laughs> and that was only to delay <laughs> so my synapses could fire and I could think of something to say. Yep. Um, yeah, great question. Ben. Yeah, great question. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's a, that's a great question. So uh, I, I'll just take my gender work. Um, I there's a particular theory called constraints theory, and we've applied this across different recreation settings, and so it's been used on persons with disabilities. It's been used on um, older adults. It's been used on indoor recreation settings, outdoor recreation settings, and it had not been applied this theoretical approach to hunting. And so I went through and. Uh, used a model to predict hunting behavior. And so I used how women were constrained by hunting, how they negotiated through that hunting. Um, I used measures like self-efficacy, so their confidence that they felt mm -hmm. while they were hunting, and also measures of social support. And so if you look through like a lot of the R3 literature, these are things that, you know, um, organizations are touching on. They're like, oh, you need mentors, you need support. And so what I did is just measure those using kind of tested measures out of psychology and social psychology. 
And I was Take able- us through that, those details. Exactly how do you measure that? Yeah, so it's a great question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how do you even do that? <laughs> um, well, we are mixed method researchers. And so uh, we do a little bit of interviewing, um, but we do a lot of kind of survey work. And so we ask a lot of people questions. Um, and so we often have like a battery of questions. And so it's, um, I might ask you, uh, tell me about your your hunting constraints on a scale of one to five, one being the least constrained, five being the most constrained. Tell me how um, constrained were you by these factors? And they might have things like complex rules and regulations. Um, ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Five. You know, um, no time, uh, no resources. No, I don't know where to hunt. I don't have anyone to hunt with. And so then I'll get people to respond on a one to five Likert scale. And so I take that quantitative data and I actually... Uh, through the theory, understand the relationships between certain variables. So I understand that, you know, it, you need constra- you have constraints, but you also have these motivations that help you overcome those constraints. And so uh, through complex sampling and complex statistical analysis. <laughs> and like complex. Very only the, complex. Only the most sophisticated. Only the most sophisticated modeling <laughs> techniques. I always say that requires a calculator. It does. Yeah. <laughs> There's a nice, like we have these like computers and these software systems and we throw in all the important details and then it spits out a model at yeah. the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're able to get to kind of these ultimate uh, variables that we're interested in. So I'm really interested in what's predicting hunting participation. Mm. And so from that, from my kind of model of uh, understanding women, I'm able to say, okay, if they have more support, if they're more confident, if they have fewer constraints, then they are more likely to participate in some type of hunting activity. Yeah. I think that you have anything to add to that, Alex? I'll... No. It's been a good try not to. Yeah. What she said. I'm not an idiot. <laughs> Despite this look. <laughs> what she said. I think that's, it's super interesting to me. I know it always calls back to R3, but I think that there's a lot of conversations that I've had recently that are around this, the complexity of, of those motivations, yeah. right? How we get to where we are, right? Sitting in a room with your students here a minute, uh, uh, half an hour ago, I was just kind of studying their stories to try to determine how each of them came to be where they are today because they're because I believe you guys and they are, are both in a pretty amazing place where you're able to spend time analyzing these factors, understanding them, and then and articulating them to other folks. Um, so when you, when you started on, on this particular venture, like what difficulties you run into, what things you're looking for, uh, what pitfalls and these kind of mm. um, studies are, are out there? Yeah. Um, I mean, I can go right to my, li- my most uh, limiting factors in my research, which are always great. Sometimes uh, uh, it's really hard to get at to understand the people who are not engaging in hunting. Mm-hmm. There's not a list of non-hunters out there. Damn it. Damn it is right. <laughs> we could just do some targeted marketing. Um, they, it's the same thing we often hear about kind of this elusive wildlife enthusiast group. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to know about the wildlife enthusiasts. They're like, oh, they're increasing. More people are wildlife viewing. Um, and then you go to want to study that group. There's no list of them. And so one of our challenges as researchers is finding the right sample of people to actually ask questions of. And I think it's in particularly interesting with R- when it's related to R3 because mm. you're really trying to capture the people who are not hunting. And so my work on gender was a study of, uh, it was males and females, but it was of people who were already big game hunting. And so I'm asking about the things that are constraining them, but they've overcome the constraints. And so it's almost kind of this like 
post hoc analysis of how they did that. Yeah. And um, what we're really interested in are those people who aren't doing it. Yeah. And so how do you find them? <laughs> Is there an answer to that question? There is no there is answer. No answer. <laughs> I thought you maybe had an answer to that question. Yeah. <laughs> you don't hunt? All right, come over. Yeah, come um, on in. I'll ask you a few questions. <laughs> do you start, when you're thinking about these things, do you start with a hypothesis of this is why more women aren't getting into hunting? Is there, there a concrete hypothesis or are you working just from a, some sort of data set? That's a good question. I, there are some uh, guiding research questions and we, we find those in hypotheses like when we actually get into the analysis. Um, but we, we often f- try to figure out what's missing out of literature. And so you start with a kind of, oh, I have this brilliant idea. Let's see if it's even been studied. And you start going and digging into the literature, which is made even in the 20 years that we've been in, through grad school and here, the internet has been phenomenal in that regard. So we're able to access a lot more research. Um, and then we, we, we develop a research question out of that and, um, and go from there. Yeah, I mean, the methods will follow based on the question, right? So you might have something that, some phenomenon that you just don't know a lot about and you need to go learn more and yeah. you need to do just what we're doing here. You go talk to people, you you know train yourself to be a really good listener and ask really open-ended questions and follow follow the threads and those will lead you to, yeah. you know. Sounds like a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep. um, you're hosting your own private podcast. <laughs> Private like podcast it. through with research <laughs> protection. Research protection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then if you, you know, Libby mentioned we do kind of mixed methods, so we'll often pair that interview and more exploratory research with some sort of quantitative follow-up where out of that interviewing we come to a hypothesis and we wonder if, if you know, A is related to B. or um, And so will then design a quantitative study with a representative sample that allows us to infer up and scale up to some populations. And so that's where the, the survey work Got it. comes in. So you guys brought some notes. You have some examples of your works. It's time to get in. They go. I like to. This is a really good podcast fodder here. Don't yeah. Papers, papers, papers yeah. rattling. <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's the two mediums good. beating each other. Yeah, we wouldn't be good academics if we didn't bring our papers. Right? <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I should have brought some papers. Um, so give me like let's 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 start with one of pick your favorite. You got looks like you have about eight or nine or ten. Yeah, a few. Um, pick your favorite and tell me. Is, is give us a, a quick rundown of you know one of these studies. And, we're, and we'll dissect it. I've read a about, few of them. I talk about elk and brucellosis. I was going to say, why would you not would start you not? with that one? Yeah, it's like my our favorite one. I mean, it's my favorite. Your favorite? I don't know. Like you're just playing the hits right now. I am. We're playing the hits. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, one of the first studies that we collaborated with uh, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks on was trying to understand, um, you know, how the agency could approach the elk and brucellosis management problem that they have out of Yellowstone and. Let me see if I can do this briefly, but you know, brucellosis is a plenty pretty, of time. Yeah, plenty of time. Uh, brucellosis is a pretty um, nasty disease that was introduced by livestock originally, you know, hundred and some odd years ago. Uh, it's now in the wildlife populations um, and is often transmitted back to cattle, which is bad news if you like to eat steak or That's you right. sell steak. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so there's lots of options on the table for how to manage kind of elk on the landscape and keep them from interacting with cattle and spreading the disease. And so there's been um, lots of effort by um, the cooperative unit here on campus, Mike Mitchell and some other folks at FWP to, to kind of collaboratively get 
the major stakeholders involved to come up with some options. But they wanted to know what the broader public thought about that, both yeah. just general Montana residents, um, landowners specifically, but also hunters. And so we worked with them to do kind of a three-tiered study of those groups um, in a concentrated area right outside Yellowstone, um, as well as across the state. So we could just kind of understand how the whole Montana public yeah. felt. Um, yeah, and it's one of those opportunities where you go in with lots of ideas about what might matter, right? Like we thought going in that when once cattle were infected, that people would change their minds. Like it's an emergency, we got to do something about it. Um, we thought that, um, you know, the elk, the kind of status of the elk population would be really important. Um, and that, that did come out. But what really rose to the top at the end of the day was like public access to private lands. Really? Like, so it didn't really matter what kind of tool we were talking about. It didn't matter which stakeholder group we were talking about. The public hunters and landowners themselves wanted to see landowners reciprocate with public access if they were going to receive some sort of assistance from the state. Um, and so it puts an interesting kind of context to the discussion um, of the issue here. And so, yeah, and what I think what I like about it is that we have this, you know, uh, nasty uh, publication um, with lots of numbers and citations um, and no pictures. I think I think we successfully avoided any picture. No pictures. Oh no, that's true. We got, some bubbles. We got some bubbles in there. Yeah. Uh, but, so, you know, bubble charts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think to lead off and say that what you first found is that these people were united on access is very surprising to me. Yeah. I don't know. What do you attribute that to? Is it the place they live? It is because that's not the, can't be the case across the country. Not in my experience, at least with with anecdotal evidence, less than what yeah. You have. Um. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we got into the mechanisms of it, so I, I um, hesitate to speculate on what, what that is. But, um, you know, it's it's something that some stakeholders advocate for and other stakeholders advocate against. And so what allows us to uh, – Libby's shaking her head at me. I, I'm always I'm always the one who's like, <laughs> I'm underselling. I'm trying to say as yeah, least I, as possible. I don't, know. I, don't even know. I don't even know why you wouldn't just – this is a perfect example. Like, So we couch this idea in reciprocity. And so when we're thinking about – am I right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got to play mediator, guys. Yeah. Guys, guys. <laughs> Little did you know. Yeah. And so the idea that if you're going to get something from the state that you have to give back – and so this idea of reciprocity is is if we go back to like core human values, this is a thing. This is a thing that people like. They want to know that if they are giving, they are getting something back in return. And that's just kind of human nature. And so the idea of reciprocity in terms of getting assistance from the state and then opening up your your land for hunting is yeah. is a real thing. What a best case scenario for the the shared ideas and the culture of a place. Yeah, is to have that reciprocity be so ingrained that mm-hmm. that even when even in a micro case like this, that it's 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 evident is amazing. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's great news. It is cool news. Yep. So what good, else is in there? It was a good study. Um, what 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 did you find in the end as you as you wrote your paper there with all the bubble shirts? Well, I was going to say like we wrote this nasty thing but what was nice is and fwp really kind of forced us to think um you know outside the box in terms of how to communicate our work at the end of the day and so we have you know we survive here by publishing so that exists but um working with them to put together kind of a graphical uh representation of this research at the end of the day um and so what what this allows us to do 
is to take all of these things that people think are important and put them all into one model and understand how they really, um, you know, what comes out on top. And that's when that public access came, you know, came out as kind of the strongest piece. So when we put it up against whether people like to see animals killed or not, whether we put it up against um, whether the elk population is high or low, whether cattle have been infected or not. That's that's an amazing. Put it all together. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about an economic driver for private landowners that is seemingly put set aside at some level for, for uh, this idea of reciprocity. Yeah. Well, and it's kind of cool because, um, you know, sometimes when we work with FWP, they're looking um, to make sure that they're, you know, they're looking for help to make sure they're thinking about an issue the right way and that they're, they, so a lot of times we'll work with the state when it's a, you know, a little bit more of a controversial issue or they're looking for some kind of um, assistance with the scientific kind of robustness of a particular study. And so we'll come in and work pretty intimately and closely with the state to come up with an idea. And then they kind of turn it over to us to do the sampling and to make sure we're asking the right questions and who we're asking them of. And so as, as we think about this, my husband would be modest, but he is really good at sampling. And so how do we sample people in a way that's statistically sound? And so he thinks about this over and over and it's over again. to get in the ladies, guys. Yeah. <laughs> sampling. sampling. <laughs> Large sample size. We were just talking, we were just talking about my college days. <laughs> that's what really turned me on in grad school. <laughs> I, I told you, I went to a school that was all girls before. Yeah. Played the numbers. Where I went there. I played the numbers and I lost. Yeah. But I'm still, I'm still staying behind my strategy. <laughs> but uh, so when we thought, think about it, we sampled and we in the statistics and we did some weighting and and so this represents the groups that we intended to represent. And so a lot of times people are like, oh, it's social science. You manipulated the data. No, we didn't. This is this is you know we followed a, a pretty um, you know uh, rigorous approach from the start. And yeah. so we can, we are confident when we say this is how people felt across the state. And we didn't just we we sampled landowners as a particular group. We sampled hunters and then we had a general population as well. And so we got kind of at all these, these three different groups that the agency was really interested in. But like in. any, any science at the end of the day, it's up to the decision makers in charge to weigh all sorts of different evidence. Um, but I think our role is to put numbers to yeah. the human dimension to yeah. this instead of lots of speculation or people saying they speak for the majority. Uh, let's go actually measure that. Yeah. On this podcast, we have been having a lot of conversations about our model of conservation and talking about how, you know, it, each step of that process. And this is heartening to me because it is highlighting how science uh, and even social science, which we don't think of a lot as hunters, how social science impacts wildlife management on a state level, which is what, what, which really the key, the center point of our model of conservation. And so what you guys are talking about is, if, hopefully for everyone listening, if you were to ever to doubt the science or biology that's baked into state wildlife management, they're holding these, these animals in trust for all of us. This is a great example of how, how this leads up and why I really wanted to come and chat with you guys exactly what you just said. And it's the fact that you're talking about elk transferring disease to a, a money crop, which is cattle and people still not. I mean, you, you, that's the, the common trope in the West is mm-hmm. the private landowner versus the public land user and the way that that all, the way that all works out. When you guys are talking to these survey folks, how do you, how do you speak to them? Do they fill out a form? Do you speak to them personally? 
obviously not. <laughs> yeah. Again, we do it different ways for different studies, but you know, we do a, a lot of mail surveys. Um, so we, you know, are mailing you a packet of, uh, you know, a letter and a questionnaire that you fill out. And if you don't fill it out, we will send you a postcard to say, please fill it out. So it if out. you don't fill it out, we'll send you another one to I say, thought fill it out. Come to your house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I couldn't have the time, I would. Yeah. We want the easiest path to be to fill it out and send it back to us. Um, yeah, so a lot of that, again, we do a lot of interviews too. So we'll go out and talk to people and, rec- and record those interviews and the, and the words um, become the data. Yeah, particularly with elk and, and brucellosis, did you have any interactions with private landowners that you felt were impactful? Yeah, so um, I, I sometimes get the, um, the position of being the person of contact on surveys. I think my, this is my husband gladly defers to me to be that person. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> More affable. She gets the calls. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. So I get the calls. And, um, and they end better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really, I, I truly enjoy talking to people. And so the idea that I get to pick up the phone and talk somebody through our survey and the importance of filling it out. And it's really interesting because um, we got landowners, hunters, we got all sorts of people, we got husbands and wives, like, um, and they all have something they want to tell me about the survey or about the issue that we're actually studying. And so, um, and so part of this research is sometimes just listening to the person on the other end of the phone and if they have a complaint or if they have an issue and just being willing to have that conversation. And so there is a, you know, we get minor things like, um, uh, one wife called me and said, why didn't I get the survey? I'm a hunter. And so then you have to talk through sampling and, you know, this is a sam- simple random sample. And so you weren't chosen. Your husband was chosen and absolutely your voice is important. And here are the ways that I think you can contribute, uh, to, you know, wildlife conservation. Then you get folks who think you're asking the wrong questions. <laughs> why would you ask this question? This is a stupid question. It's totally leading. <laughs> how do you not, yeah. How do you live your life as a social scientist and not just want to punch yourself in the face. Like I had, I had an interaction this morning where like social sciences, they're, they're not talking to enough people. I said, what? Like, I don't, how did you possibly make that inference from nothing that you know? And so I think that I'm sure that you deal with that all the time. All the time. And then, and you have to just, I mean, we just systematically go through like, here are the steps we took. Here's why we did it. Let me tell you a little bit about the waiting we'll do. Here's how I think it represents. Um, And that's where we like, what's cool about us, I think as, as a university professors and faculty, we, we have that training and, and grounding to feel confident in the, the design that we've chosen. And um, yeah, we don't do it perfectly. We don't ask the perfect questions every single go around. Um, but we we strive for kind of developing solid questions. And we do all sorts of crazy stuff to um, to check these surveys before they go out. We pre-test it on like all of our students. So we make our, and you think, the public's critical. Try giving your survey to all your students. I met some of them. Just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're like oh. pretty critical people. <laughs> I know. Like, I liked it. <laughs> yeah, I liked I got it. that critical part of the critical thinking down. Here. They really did. They were like, "Give me all your feedback," and then it's like torn apart, and they're like, like you know, like yelling at you on paper, and you're like, "Okay, I have feelings too." <laughs> okay. I bought this red pen for something. <laughs> and so we do that. We we test it there. We of course, if we're doing work for the agency, the agency is. Uh, working with us on that survey development so they're comfortable with the kind of questions we're asking we'll send it to colleagues across the country to critique and review and you know and a lot of the a lot of the questions that we use um 
we don't come up with on the fly. They've been used, you know, in the literature and in other studies over and over. And so there's some validity uh, that's been built over time. Okay. Um, but it's well, a it's definitely a young science. Um, yeah, it is. And I, like I said, a lot of people there's there's the methodology. I think is important to cover here because people. It's. I think it's relatively easy from the outside looking into poke holes and in, in some of these methodologies. Um, so specifically on elk and brucellosis, when you when you go to write this paper, what's your interaction with FWP? You know, what are they grading you on? <laughs> what are you? How are they thinking about the result that you, you know this paper that you're turning in at the end of the process? Yeah, I mean, I think that they want to know. I mean, I hesitate to speak for them, but but they want to know when they go to the commission to say. You know, just just as they would with a population model of elk, um, they want to say with confidence that you know the data are what the data are, and that people people's attitudes are this. Um, and so the peer review process allows you know a higher level of confidence in in those data and, and in our results. So you know, so they'll defer to us in terms of thinking about what the theoretical framing is and how to kind of couch this in the existing literature um and then as that goes through the, the peer review process the results then are you know much more robust for them to have some confidence when they present them to, to the commission gotcha so what yeah. did they present in this case um i think what's I the abstract i think i pres- i presented it and i was oh, nice. Are you pregnant i was pregnant <laughs> i was so uncomfortable so i'm like, I'm, like, like I'm only pregnant enough at the time so it was like did i eat like an extra hamburger or was that a belly <laughs> <laughs> so it's the awkward stage of pregnancy yeah. <laughs> i like that i like that um yeah, I now I'm now, and then and then I had pregnancy brain. So it was actually probably better that I did it because then if I probably didn't even remember that it happened at the time. <laughs> You're just eating ice cream and sh- be quiet. <laughs> you want to argue? With Don't me? talk to me. I'm eating pickles. <laughs> it was it was comical. I remember that. Um, and so we we presented them with kind of our our key findings. We we talked about the access to private lands. We talked about um, having. Uh, that elk population objectives were somewhat, um, people wanted to see some regulation that followed some of the population objectives. Um, which right, ha- so like as elk populations were too abundant, like above objective, that people were more okay with kind of, um, you know, more lethal control, more heavy hand on the management side, um, which is, it's intuitive, um, but literally no one had put, data to that before which is you know sometimes we find exactly what people think we're going to find but now we have data yeah. and we know and <laughs> that's it's a not great your point. opinion it's a great yeah. <laughs> it's a great point i mean it's there's this anecdotal like yeah of course that's what people are going right. to say but how do you know and how does that interact how important is that relative to this public access question yeah. oh it's not that mm. and that's, that's so the where, data can show us yeah that. that's where it gets interesting well and we were also able to show kind of where on particular management actions where there was a lot more disagreement. And so we used a method that depicts that for our agency. And so um, like I'm showing you this, there's a bunch of figures with bubbles on them and some of the bubbles are big and some of the bubbles are small. And the small bubbles suggest that there's a lot of agreement, whereas the big bubbles suggest that there's a lot of disagreement. And so um, at the time they were considering kill permits and they were uh, for um, uh, later season kill permits. And there was a lot of disagreement around those kill permits regardless if you're a hunter landowner or or 
general population. And so the other one that was kind of interesting was permanently fencing haystacks was also a place where we saw a lot of disagreement on how to manage elk. And so it's kind of an interesting depiction. It's called Potential for Conflict Index, and it was developed out of some some researchers at Colorado State University and PCI, um, huh? Yeah, PCI. PCI. And you can go, I mean, you can go to our, you can guys can, whoever's listening, look us up and on our webpage, we have the report. So if anyone's interested in kind of thinking about it a little bit more. The other thing that's interesting there is that we, we like to talk about these groups and we just did in terms of sampling, like landowners, they're all the same hunters. They all feel the same way. Um, and that's, this data really show where that is appropriate and where it's really not, where you have a, you know, varying views within the hunter population about the acceptability of different management techniques or even hunting itself. Um, and so figuring out when it's appropriate to kind of think about hunters as one group and when you really can't do that. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's something I think about a lot. We've, I've talked about in recent podcasts, oh, we talked about R3 a lot. I just sat down with a group called the Sportsman's Alliance and they they deal with specifically legislation against or fighting against animal rights activists. Mm-hmm. And they were, you know, and much of that conversation was around how do you, you feel like you have a united front on one side that opposes, that is animal rights and opposes what we do in some level that, you know, really kind of right now at its edges, but eventually that would be pushing inward. And then you have this hunting group that's hard to define right it's very regional it's very pursuit based it's very perspective based and value system based and it's all just a mess and so if you guys could please help well it's interesting to find it a little bit better well i you know i always brings me back to this critical piece of literature from the 60s um this is an early recreation study and the title was the average camper who doesn't exist and so um it's literally in my, one of my papers i as i was scanning it i was like oh i got that reference in there um to suggest that all hunters or all women or all landowners are the exact same is something we we all do this we all say hunters we all say landowners um, but they are very different and it, it and like you said it's different regionally it's different if you're on this side of the rocky mountains or that side of the rocky mountains if you're um, living with grizzly bears or without grizzly bears um, there's just a lot of variation and so you know studying um, issues from a very micro level all the way up to a macro level is needed and so you can't just do one study there's often uh, kind of a tiered process of trying to understand all the it's job security there right there it really I was going to say it's it never ending yeah future research it's never ending story yeah. Yeah, yeah every paper has future research that's where we shove it all <laughs> well it's like I was you know just reading on your report here it says that the this PCI revealed that public access for hunting can reduce conflict among cattle producers that's a sentence that um I maybe before moving out west, definitely before talking to you guys, it's something that I would have I would have bet against rather than bet for. Yeah. Um, so again, I could probably keep coming back to this in this conversation. I know this is a little bit different with brucellosis and less elk, less disease, less yeah. disease transfer, things of that nature. But it, but again, it goes to the point of well, that's the, the fun first, stuff. Is yeah. like sometimes we confirm what we already knew, and now we have data. But sometimes we find surprises. And that's that's really the exciting stuff when we go in with one one idea and, and the data just shows that we're just Something. wrong. Yeah. Uh, and then another idea. But You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where... 
Land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to Land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids with over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, Steve here. I want to talk about something crucial for any outdoor enthusiast, which is battery reliability. I've got interstate batteries powering my gear. I have interstate batteries in my camper. I run an interstate battery in my boats. I use interstate batteries because the last thing I want is to be left powerless. Interstate batteries isn't just another battery company. They are outrageously dependable. In Alaska, the boat dealer that we use for getting stuff and repairs, he uses interstate Whether you're gearing up for hunting season, planning your next RV trip, or getting your boat ready, Interstate has the battery for all your needs. With over 150,000 dealer locations, the power you need is always nearby. Interstate batteries aren't just about power. It's about being prepared for any situation. Don't let a dead battery ruin your adventure. Head over to interstatebatteries.com. Use their store locator and equip yourself with a battery that won't let you down. When you're out in the wild or just on your daily commute, an interstate battery is your key to a dependable journey. When you, well, when you think about like these groups as we talk about, it, even if you think about outdoor recreation of those as a group, you could break that down into skiers, climbers, hikers, all these other things. I've done that in the, in the past for marketing purposes. But, and then you think of hunters as, as all, as this different group of upland hunters, turkey hunters. You can break it up regionally as well. Do you feel that the that the hunting subset is more complicated in its like in its dissection than than maybe the outdoor rec group? It's more varied in its perspectives. Like, how would you line that up? Because it's it's yeah, I, that's a really I've actually never thought of it that way. I, I mean, it, what's interesting about hunting, and I would probably lump fishing in this with this as well, is that there's such a variety of how you do it and when you do it, um, you know, skiing, for example, it's very, it, you know, there's one season, there's resorts and there's backcountry. And I, I know there's nuance between well, those. I'm not, you're not, to, yeah, but you're not doing it in the swamps of Louisiana correct? and in the, in the plains, you're, this is not, you do it on a mountain with the, and you go down. That's right. And so in, <laughs> in mountain, down. you're welcome. <laughs> skiers. I've explained <laughs> your pursuits. <laughs> And it's not that they're like, what's cross country skiing? Yeah. Like, oh, crap. Well, um, and there's, and so for hunting, like there, I mean, there's the, you know, how you harvest an animal, um, which firearms you use, whether you are into archery, whether you are into big game, small game, there's so many variations of how you hunt. And then, 
you layer on top of that in recreation, we have this theory called specialization. And so how you progress through an activity and become highly specialized or not. Um, and so when you start thinking about that, there are, they, I, I feel like hunters and anglers are, are very much, there's, there's a lot of them and they're all doing it slightly different. And it goes back to one of your kind of points on motivations and how do we, how are we understanding those motivations from or experiences or recreation experience preferences. How are we understanding those for every activity and making sure we, we understand the full picture of what's going on on the landscape? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think the answer is yes. Hunting is way complicated. Super complicated. <laughs> Super complicated, more complicated. Yeah. I mean, um, we've built typologies within, yes. you know, certain hunting or fishing activities, right? So you have, it's not just that you are a saltwater angler. You ha there's like six different types of saltwater, you know, like, so, um, people are now offended. They're like, you're yeah. typing me. Yeah. yeah. Don't you type oh, me. Definitely. That's exactly yeah, right. I found your pigeonhole. Yeah. I've got, there. I've got a typology for you. There, and they always <laughs> range when we do a typology study. There's like this, we call them the all, I call them the all around enthusiast. There's someone who's like ever jazzed about everything. And then there's like, the dud group, like the group at the end, who's like just kind of low on all motivations. Like, why are you doing this? Yeah, why are you even doing this? Why how'd you make your way into my sample? Oh, that's you like, actually don't want to like, be doing this. Oh, then you say to that guy, the fact that you're doing anything, <laughs> because it's 100% harder to do something than it is to do nothing, yeah. I've found. Um, we talk about that all the time in the hunting group about like just the way we, I, we have a guy that works for our company. His name's Mark Kenyon, and he's a whitetail guy. And like, all, he kind of has just a one track mind when it comes to that. And we're always making fun of him. I grew up as a whitetail hunter. I love whitetail hunting. It's a fantastic thing to do, sit up in a tree and all. But I, I can't just do that. I don't just think about that. But he does. And there's, there's folks like that in Upland and Waterfowl. Like they get this niche. And even outside of like just the media landscape where a niche is kind of a, a valuable thing, just, as, just in your, your own, you know, your own place in the culture, a lot of people pick a lane. I mean, do you guys have any ideas about why that is or why, like what motivates people to kind of stick into one? I think it's like, oh, it's boring. Whitetails get boring after a while, <laughs> but not other people like wake up and that's all they think about. They name the deer. You're not very good at keeping your audience. Aren't you? Harry? <laughs> no. you know, yeah. Love you guys. <laughs> yeah. These whitetail guys come back. <laughs> well, it is interesting because it, it, obviously it's like generalist versus like highly specialized. Right. And we know that. Um, so if we look at like, you know, we've heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and um, it's kind of a psychology theory where you have like, you meet your basic needs and then you can go up this pyramid and get to self-actualization. We also call that kind of flow experiences. And this is, um, there's a philosopher, I'm going to screw up his name. It's like Shiksamahaila. Um, it's interesting. Good. Yeah, yeah good. it's really good, really yeah. professional doctor. doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they talk about flow experiences. And so uh, if you can, and flow is, I mean, you can think about your favorite hunting experience or your favorite outdoor recreation experience where like the world just kind of just disappeared around you and you were just highly focused on that one thing. And so I think people who's, who might specialize are looking to achieve that flow experience. And so um, if they can get there by doing the same activity and learning it so well, they can quickly get to that that point in time where they feel like they are in this absolute state of self-actualization. And I know that's a little like, no, no. I mean, I, I've had folks on podcasts that were in bear attacks that are talking about flow states. Yep. Yeah. So it's a strange connection yeah. um, between those things. But that's interesting for me to think about. Cause I was getting made fun of the other day for being, I was like, I'm a generalist, man. I, I like to do everything. I don't, I can't spend my time only doing a thing when there's so many other 
things, things to do. To do. Yeah. Um, people were making fun of me. Well, that means you're good at nothing. I'm like, oh, that's probably true. But of all trades, master of one. Master of only, of none. <laughs> but it's interesting to, uh, interesting to hear how that, that manifests itself in hunting. Well, and I wonder if like generalists maybe think about flow and the flow motivations are different. So maybe it's like the scenery or being in like, you know, there are some other things that are getting you to that point and it's not just the activity itself. Yeah. Do you guys ever think about motivations like intrinsic versus extrinsic and how people are motivated to, to do things? Yeah. I, th- I think about it like all the time. You should come to my class. We just oh. covered the section on motivations. Really? Yeah. That was a good guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, so how do you, when you think about hunters and obviously when you study it from a social level and the interactions, you have to think about motivations. Um, so how do you think about in the modern social media age, the extrinsic and intrinsic motivations of hunters? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Uh, we can think back to like motivation theory, so expectancy balance theory, and so how people, um, the outcome or the benefit you're hoping to achieve as being kind of one of these these driving forces. And so uh, a lot of times in, in our theories, we're, we're, think, we're, we're interested in that end goal. Like what are you hoping, what's the benefit you're hoping to achieve at the end of it? And that is closely lined up with your motivation. And there's this really cool paper um, by some researchers, I don't know, in the 90s, um, looking at, they have a list of like 375 potential outdoor recreation motivations. And there's like this massive list. It's like, it's an awesome paper because you can, when you're doing survey research, you can just grab it and like, then, like avoiding your spouse. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm <exactly>. hungry. <laughs> but it's all, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so when we start thinking about motivations and which ones of that list of 375 or whatever it is, thinking about which ones are tailored mostly to rec- to hunting is important. And so we know that different groups are motivated for different reasons. And so uh, we, I looked at motivations by gender. And so why women and men are motivated differently. And there were some motivations that were the same. So being in nature, getting outdoors, things like that. There was some some, um, coalescing around that. Um, I noticed that men tended to hunt more for social, like hanging out with their friends um, rather (laughs) than women, whereas women tended to hunt for more family-related reasons. And so... uh, uh, which is just funny to me. Um, you know, men are going out to socialize and women are going out to take care of their family. And I, uh, I'm going to say something, but I'm going to not Yeah, I'm say also going to This is refrain from comment. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm I sit this one out. I did. <laughs> I had an awesome hunting season this year where I got out a total of one day. Um, and this is because of my two very small children. And my husband was going out uh, for like a week hunting trip. Awesome wife, go hunting for a week. Um, <laughs> I want to say this one out too. Yeah. And I said to him, he's like, what do you want me to do? I said, get a damn deer. That's what I want you to do. We yeah. need some meat in our freezer. I said, you know, and he's like, should I get it? wait for a big one? I said, no, you get a deer. And so this idea that some, you know, there are these differences between how men and women hunt. And That's not true, actually. That is inaccurate oh, I, I, representation. I, I said, do I shoot a doe on day one? And you said, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I need you to be gone for three days. Like day two afternoon? Okay, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> now this is a good podcast yeah. right here. Yeah. Marital disputes. We need to break, yeah, we yeah. need to just yeah. swim right into that one. <laughs> it's not hard. Yeah. Um, that's interesting to think of for me because I, I was, again, talking to uh, Hannah, one of your grad students here, and it just struck me that there's so much 
conversation around women in hunting. I remember when I read, there was a study, I want to say in 2013, by Responsive Management, it's a group out of Virginia. <laughs> oh, well, I probably got the year wrong. Was that? But they, they started to identify groups, you know, as, as hunting was on the rise for the first time in, in many years since the 80s identify groups that were getting back into it and they they started with locavores returning military members and then and then females and i thought oh well that's a <laughs> as far as like population sets <laughs> it's like half of that's all of us more than half yeah and then a few of us <laughs> that like to eat a few of us that were in the military and then all half of us <laughs> are is third <laughs> doesn't make any sense well it's fascinating so when I was publishing my dissertation work, I had a, re- so we go through like a peer review process and you send it out and it's blind. You have no idea who's reviewing it. And they like, because it's blind, they like shred you. And so it's uh it can be a really hard process. And I think I had a statement and, it, and, and ultimately my reviews were great. Like uh, they really helped push my paper into a better place. But one of the statements was, I, I disagree completely that women are going to, um, make up for the lack of, of, or the decline in hunting population of males. And they just disputed the fact that women were going to engage in the sport as, as much as I was making a case for it. And, and, you know, I've, I guess I've, that review stuck with me because I keep thinking about it. Uh, can women really make up, um, a me, a big piece of that, mm-hmm. that population decline? And I, I don't know. And, but for me, Personally, we have to try because, like you said, it's 52% of the population. Um, and so if we are not putting a, a big push on females, and, and, fa- and in particular maybe uh, as women emerge out of college or in, into college and then also family unit type hunting, yeah. I think we're missing something. I, I think we're missing a lot. Uh, I, will, I will get a little bit, give you a little bit into the old media kit for this podcast. 91% male. Nine percent female, and and that's pretty typical. Reflects the we were just looking at the stats of hunting participation. It's ninety ten. Is it really? Oh, well, at least I'm representative. That's all yeah. I ever tried to be. It's representative <laughs> yeah, that's of, good. Of the, <laughs> yeah, you want to be this, this average, right? Right there. Um, it's always been interesting to me, and I've seen that pretty much everywhere I've gone. Um, and so when we say it's rising, to what? Yeah. To what end? Right. Yeah. Um, so getting into your the paper that I read and, and some of your work on on this, how do we start this conversation? Like we know it's a growing set, but it's only growing to the point where it couldn't really shrink, in my opinion. That's how I start thinking about it. This couldn't shrink anymore. It can't be 4% of the population. It just doesn't make any sense for the future of hunting. It could be. Could be. Yeah, that's just reasons I wrote. <laughs> yeah, it could be if I you keep know. talking. Someone should study um, that. So, and so is that how you start thinking about this? Like, it can't go down. It's got to go up or, or what's the, what's the way that you approach? Yeah. I, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, like, so when I first got into like looking at women and hunting, I, I, you quickly start looking at women and kind of how women experience recreation, leisure and the different constraints that they have that men just don't have. Um, and it's not, it's not, a, I'm not saying that, because men don't have constraints to hunting. They have, they have their whole suite of different things that are preventing them um, from going out there. And, you know, we look at like changing gender roles in society. That's preventing for men from going out as often. I mean, I have to have an equal number of days of recreation as my husband does. And that's yeah. because we have an equal <laughs> household. 
I mean, it's really tough for us men. <laughs> so there, I guys. totally agree. I, it's hard for me. Like it's hard for me to even manage it sometimes. <laughs> and so like, this idea that like we should be studying both experiences, like it's not enough to just, you know, focus on women, but that's what I'm really interested in. So we'll focus on that. Yeah. Um, and thinking about, you know, like life stages, um, the fact that I hunted pr- pre- twice pregnant and twice while breastfeeding was a different set of constraints that you will ever have to deal with. I had a. Yeah, I have not had that constraint. Yeah, you didn't have to pump every hour and a half on a hunting trip. And yeah. so, like, that's. A, Can you adjust that time where you're like, there's a buck? Yeah. I'll pump in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> can you do that? No, no I can't do that. Yeah, it's no. like all of a sudden you just start squirting milk everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I, love I love it. It took us about 40 minutes before the. <laughs> we, yeah. we knew we were going to get here. There's no way we were going to this conversation. <laughs> but it was hilarious. I mean, I, I hunted with a, my girlfriend at the time who was also doing the same exact thing. And uh, we're like still questioning. I, I have refrained from asking any biologist if I detracted animals because I was like totally in this like state. <laughs> I have no idea, um, but the, the, there's just different challenges, and so understanding like the w- women's experience and what they are are competing against, and just that's important. That's an important inquiry, and that's an important piece of trying to get more women involved in the activity. And yeah. it's it like you said earlier, it's not like a one size fits all model. Like we have amazing becoming outdoors women programs in, in across the states, and that fits certain women. And for other women, that's not. It's going to be something completely different. Maybe it's the locavore, and so that like you know there is no silver bullet with women in hunting, but it's the kind of suite of options and the suite of support networks and the suite of mentor programs that are really going to, I think, make a difference. Yeah. And that's where uh, I think conservationists and hunting advocates or others can learn a lot from the marketing and business world, right? Where, you know, you don't sell a product by talking about it one way, you know, you figure out all the different market segments are at, that are out there and you talk to them specifically about the thing that's in their way. Yeah. But it's, it's hard to talk about it in such a reductive fashion too. Like, Hey ladies, nobody's doing it. Like, Hey, uh, I mentioned this in another podcast with like the, some of the pro- issues with R3, my, my lovely boss, Steve Rinella said like, you can't tell someone this is a declining activity come on, jump on board. Yeah. And when he said that, I was like, dude, you, this is, that's one of the more powerful things around this idea. Good descriptive norms right there. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. I'm going to start using these terms. <laughs> like it sounds smarter. Um, but yeah, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a big thing for us. Like how do we first describe the plight that we're in and, and recognize that there is an issue here. There's like you said, there's obvious reasons why we're, we are where we are societal and cultural reasons that kind of have, have driven us to where we are right now. We can all probably recognize them, but what do we do with them? Is the question. Yeah. I, and I, um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this. I've been in these, so I'm currently in the throes of the working on the Montana state comprehensive outdoor recreation plan. Ooh. I know SCORP as it's fin- fondly referring SCORP. Yeah. SCORP. <laughs> Sounds like a small, ugly dog. It's <laughs> <laughs> name. Um, but we have, so SCORPs are needed across the 50 states to get LWCF stateside funds. And so it's an important document and they're guiding documents across, you know, they happen every five years. Montana's doing theirs. I've, I've worked with Montana the last go around. And so it's a kind of a privilege and an honor to be asked again to help with it. And so I've been interacting with them, my little advisory group on that and thinking a lot about how, 
uh, just how we talk about hunting in outdoor recreation. And uh, a lot of times it's, um, it's a small piece of these plans. And for me, I want to kind of elevate some of the R3 efforts and make sure that's incorporated into our planning, our state planning efforts. Um, likewise, I've, you know, after we've been talking to my buddy, Greg Lemon and, I know Greg. you know, Greg, right. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, he, he told me to mention how, uh, what was it? Dapper or handsome he was on a podcast. Oh, <laughs> he, Lord. I know he doesn't know we don't <laughs> film them. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to laugh. <laughs> um, but, we're, we're not filming. <laughs> I know. But Greg and I, and, and in same with a uh, colleague here, Josh Millspot, who's, uh, who's the Boone and Crockett chair here on UM's campus in the wildlife biology program. We've been thinking about how do we, we have all these kind of awesome groups popping up thinking about our three things. So we have, you know, field to fork, we have, you know, farm to table, we have all these like, you know, cool, like local board, like all these cool programs in all of these nonprofits or conservation organizations. And and it seems like we're not even certain who's doing what. Mm-hmm. And we're not even certain if we're all pointed in the right direction. And so um, there is, I think, I'm hopeful that, in, at least in Montana, we'll start thinking about them more comprehensively and holistically. Because I think once we can kind of organize all the efforts, we can point us all in the right direction and make sure we know what, what is it the left hand's doing with the right hand? What are the, no. You're never good at those. <laughs> the hands are doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know. I'm not good with <laughs> words. so bad uh, Is that what it is? <laughs> Idioms. Idiom. Is it an idiom? Yeah. 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 Idiom idiot. There's no I'm way to do it. Sure. I'm an idiom idiot. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's no way to know any of these things for sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I I think about this exact thing a lot. Like, is it a marketing issue? Is, 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 is it a public relations issue with hunting? In fact, when I started this podcast, it was one of the first things I said, I think there's a PR issue with what we got going on. Cause when I sat in the room with your students here, these members of BHA, you'd have no marketing problem or PR problem for hunting. If you just talked to them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you just spoke with them and asked them like, is hunting good for your life? Good for what you do? You would no problem. People right. would be lining up to take part in the world that they've created for themselves here at this college and in, in, in this town. Um, did you have a Lincoln's paper there? Cause we have a colleague, uh, who, who wrote a paper kind of on this kind of like, we think of hunters as kind of like, the rugged individual who forged their own path, you know, um, and sorry, it's not true. Like, um, you were, you know, raised in a family that supported and you learned from a a mentor or you had resources to teach yourself and while other people didn't, and you live in a town or a place where there's access and you live in a country that, you know, has embedded this into their wildlife management. Um, and so, yeah, we can reduce it down to thinking about, just participation by the individual, but there's this kind of whole kind of nested rings of support um, throughout society that constitute what they called like the social habitat for hunting. And all of that has to be intact um, for the hunter to even be in a position to say yes and to go do that sport. Um, Is there a place that we as a community can step in and maybe haven't stepped in like in that, in those rings of, of support where, you know, maybe it's after folks leave the parental, the mm. parental nest and get out into this. Like, I think we lose most hunters. Our recruitment dies off mostly in this environment in college because people are out from under the, 
the the guise of their parents and that influence they're seeing all the world around them everything is new and exciting and there's all these things they can do with their life and hunting is takes a lot of money as your students were telling me earlier like it's five hundred dollars for an out-of-state license that's ridiculous they can't afford that takes a lot of time and energy and equipment and at that time in their life they have little time little energy and not a lot of funds to buy things and go and do things so i think that goes to your point but it's also an opportunity like i think there's they're the they're the um the folks who come out of families that are supporting hunting and they may lose it in college and maybe they come back to it later in life but there's also a group of people who didn't have it, and I, I was in that category. Like, I wanted it, never had it growing up. And then as I was, you know, in college and exposed to other people, that gave me the opportunity to learn from other people and to get some of the things that I couldn't get as a kid. And so I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity at this, at this age, you know, to recruit people who didn't come out of hunting families uh, into the sport. Well, and it's it's interesting. I think um, it's it's been identified. So I'm part of this larger grant with 13 other states, and we are strategically implementing intro to hunting courses on campuses. And so we just did one two weekends ago um, up at the Boone and Crockett Ranch. Up on the heard about that? Yeah, did heard you? about that earlier. Silly. I was home with the kids. <laughs> Gen- gender rolls. Gender rolls. Gen- you gender rolled the shit out of that. Yeah, I had a blast. You gender rolled yourself into some cartoons, didn't you? Yeah, that's probably fun. Well, I, it was hilarious. So we took, uh, so Josh Millspaw and I uh, took the students up and um, the ranch manager, Luke Cacoli and Josh and uh, one of Josh's students, Dan, did a, a lot of the session. I, I was fine deferring because I felt like I was completely like mom role. I was like love and belonging. I'm like, let's have some, who wants more spaghetti? Everyone get enough to eat. Please put granola bars in your pocket. Um, And, uh, but we had this awesome, this awesome trip and we like rolled out of UM in these like black suburbans and went up, looked like secret kids on the school bus. We're like, are you secret service? We're like, no. Hunters. hunters. We're hunters. We're hunters. Can't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so we roll into the ranch and I mean, we had a range of experience levels and some folks had hunted before and um, a lot of folks had never even, they d- didn't even know what to do. They never saw a gun. They've never thought about firearms. They've never thought about the regulations and it just, they because it was free and because they just had to show up, it it was really easy for them to do. And so this grant with 13 states um, uh, funded by AFWA was the ticket for that. And so we partnered with FWP. We made sure we had a game warden there, kind of going over the regs with the students. We got He unrolled the new kind of display of FWP's regulations, which is an improvement. Um, and uh, the students got a chance. Josh and Luke took them out to the range and they had all these different like guns to try. And... The students got to shoot clay pigeons. They just got to do some target practice. They got to just experience what it meant to be around firearms and have that safety around it. And then we did a bunch of, you know, habitat and how do you look for deer and elk and things like that. Went around around the landscape and it was just really cool. Yeah, and hearing about it afterwards, I mean, I think you reflecting on that there's different needs 
among different students. And so there might, there's not just like the hunting recruitment program. Yeah. It's, you know, we have people who know what they're doing and they're interested in these programs, but they need a different type of mentorship than the folks who can't spell hunting and, but are kind of interested. And, um, it was fascinating too. I mean, BHA in the student club here has done a phenomenal job and they were the precursor for this course. They've been doing the hunting for sustainability program. And so a lot of the students who were in BHA club, um, came and helped with the weekend. And so we were able to kind of start that mentorship model. What's really cool is that Josh and Josh is leading and I'll, I'll assist uh, a course in the fall where you get college credit to do hunting for sustainability. Whoa. And I know right. game on game changer. Game on. Um, and so it's a 400 level course where you can, you know, it's kind of, um, a la carte style. You can take one credit and do the weekend, or you can do two credits and write a paper in addition, or do a third credit. And so we can have students kind of build their own uh, program. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, again, it's, it's, you keep coming back to that word complex. It's a very complex thing to do to try to first dissect and understand these different groups of people and then come to some conclusion about how to you know, create more hunters out of this gumbo of (laughs) ingredients you're not really sure of yeah um well it's cool to put some data to that too like we're talking about lots of ideas that might work and we need people that are getting creative and producing things and leading programs but we also need to kind of learn as to what's working right um and so building in some metrics of success to those programs and figuring out you know which which you know, approaches are working for which groups and how much and which are worthy of investment and, and those sorts oh, of things. A, that's where some of the data comes in. Do you guys have, you know, especially I think women hunters is, is probably the most interesting of, of all of those to me personally. Um, do you have suggestions for folks? Do you have things that based on your works are, are something we could all try and do or, or is, give us hope? Yeah. Okay. Ladies. Ladies. Um, yeah, it's, I think it, you know, again, all, not all women are the same, but there are things that I was, Josh and I were really clued into over the weekends that, um, women do not just step up and say, yeah, I want to shoot that up firearm. I want to, I want to take more runs out of the clay pigeon, you know, machine. And so, um, just being aware of that, uh, women, might not volunteer and they might they might need a little bit extra assistance to even just step up and do the do the task that we're we put put forward. I really advocate and this is just something over my years of working with high school through college I advocate and at least at this time uh women focused programming and I think having college courses is awesome but I would love to see a specific section just for women and thinking about how that experience is just different than the experience of males. And it doesn't mean we always have to do it that way. It just is, you know, I think women focused programming is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, we struggle with, are we pandering? If we say like, it's a women's hunt, are yes. we pandering? Like yeah. I, as a, do I say, <laughs> please everybody come over. It's all, it's only women. It's, it's very important. Or would you treat everyone as equals and say like, Hey, everybody, it's a hunt for everyone. But, and I struggle with that. But after talking to, you and talking, you know, talking to Hannah and some of your other female students earlier, they were, I think, because they're around you guys, more open to say, like, here's some of the things I that I experienced that you'll never, like, the perspective you'll never have. 
I don't think that's very normal in the communication with folks. I think because they're exposed to you guys and social sciences and the things that you've you've talked about here, they're more willing to say the things they've said to me that were, you know, when I go to the sportsman's warehouse, this is what I experience. When I go out in the field, this is what I experience. When I talk to other hunters, this is what I experience. And so it's cool that they were open enough to say that, but I think most female hunters probably aren't. No, and it's amazing to me just – yeah, like the, the women, uh, I mean, you met Madeline Damon, who mm-hmm. is here, and uh, she is, you know, itching for like a, a woman to go hunting with. She said that to me, like I, if I would just have, it's different with a woman, this is what she, the way she put it, it's like it's just a different interaction. It's a different way to approach the outdoors. And I'm like, okay. Us I, guys I, like to think that we're helpful in yeah. some really unhelpful ways, yeah. you know, um, and over explaining and being like overbearing and jumping is too in much sometimes. Damn, men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, we're our own worst enemy. Well, I mean, we've we've experienced that. I've, I mean, I've rarely hunt with you now. Um, thank God. Thank God. Oof. I marriage is safe. <laughs> <laughs> Separation of church. Is she hunts for here. family reasons and friends, and I hunt to get away from my family. Oh yeah, my I'm gosh. <laughs> <laughs> then the data supports it. Yeah. <laughs> but it, I mean, it's just a different experience. Like I, you know, I told him, he asked me one day what my hunt, I was going away with a girlfriend on a hunting trip. He's like, what's your hunt? I, I don't even know what you do. And he's like, saw me like packing like bottles of wine and goat cheese. And he's like, where are you going? <laughs> and I was like, oh, we're going up to a cabin. I said, we get in the car and we literally do not stop talking. Even when we're hunting, we're still having a conversation somehow. And uh, weird. <laughs> and so it's just a very different social experience when it's women. And I, I'm feeling the need on our campus right now to, um, I think we are, UM is poised to encourage hunting. Our uh, President Bodner is interested in this. Our, I, I see it up the ranks, our Dean, our Director of Wildlife. Like we, we are interested in this and getting our students involved. And so I think my next step is working with Josh and figuring out how do we have a women's focused yeah. effort on our campus, at least at the college level. Yeah. I mean, if somebody would ask me what, you know, what's my opinion on recruitment, especially for female hunters or just around the bus, I just want more hunters. I don't care how we get it. And the folks like you that are actually thinking through the logistics of this and looking at the data and trying to paint a, a more accurate picture of exactly how to take that action is I think why it's valuable because I don't, I mean, if we have to have all women classes to get, I don't care. I have no, I have, I would put no constraints on how we get new hunters in as long as we're, we're speaking in, you know, ethical terms and sustainable terms when we do it, which we are. Um, and so I think most hunters would say the same thing. That would be my guess. It's like, I just want more people to enjoy the thing that I enjoy in a responsible and informed way. Do I care how we do it? As long as it's within those constructs, I don't, I don't. Um, and so, you know, bring on the solutions. Hmm. I think we'll, we'll, we'll put them out there. Yeah, I think hunters need to think beyond hunters too, right? Like thinking about the broader social habitat for hunting um, and and the fact that hunting exists not because of hunters, but because all the 95% other people here in the country support hunting, Yeah, right? That the majority of people in this country, whether they hunt or not, support hunting. Um, and you know, doing what we can to represent the sport well, you know, build connections and good communication about what we're up to um, with the broader public. Um, so even if, you know, 
as a hunter, I don't want popular. I don't want hunting uh, to get so popular. <laughs> like, like a little bit more the, fine, but you know, I like the my spots. Conundrum. Yeah. <laughs> the ultimate conundrum. Well, there's a difference with men and women. Um, I was teasing. I had these students come up to me. You know, I talk about hunting in my classes all the time, and these like three guys come up to me and they're like, "Libby, we're trying to hunt in this one area, and we don't know where to go." And I said, yeah, I was like, here, here's how I would tackle this particular block of land. And actually, if you're looking for something close to town, I would also go to this one particular spot that I just discovered, but you're going to have to hike. You're going to have to do this. And I told Alex this and he's like, why would you say that? And I said, because I'm interested in getting people outdoors and I'm interested in getting them in all my spots. I find the spot. (laughs) finally find a good spot close to town and she goes I'm gonna bothering add, about it we're, this, this is the perfect segue to a thing that I do on this show I got a lot of heat for it out in the internet but I'm gonna keep doing it it's perfect I like, yeah that means you're doing something right I know a lot of heat a lot of people are upset it's called now here's another part of this conversation it used to be called before I met you guys it used to be called hot spot cool dude but now mm, yeah problem hot spot cool person <laughs> I think we can work on that. Can we work on that? Hot spot, <laughs> cool individual. Is where uh, this is. This actually is presented by First Light. They make lo- lovely hunting clothing mm. that we wear outside. Um, so thank you, First Light. I'm going to try to convince you guys to give me a hunting spot, and you have to be very specific. Can't be like this mountain range or something like that. You have to give me a very specific hunting spot for all the listeners of this podcast that they would go to, <laughs> and what they would find there. <laughs> And no, there's only been two guys that actually give me anything. Oh, yeah, really? I refuse immediately. You refuse immediately. Yeah. <laughs> You're just, oh my God, this is the problem. Do you want to know what the, the R3 issue is? Is no one's given up their hunting spots. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's the bell of disagreement. Yep. Uh, it's the last hurdle that you have to cut, you know, you have to clear yourself. Find your own spots. Right. R3 That's is exactly right. Recruit your own spots. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if you, you guys want to give somebody, I got a dove spot and I got like a, kind of an elk spot thus far that's what you got that's all i got and most people how don't want to give spots i don't understand it what's your end how many have you asked it's like eight i don't know two out of eight that's not good yeah not yeah. a good data set but, you know one's better than zero yeah so if you guys want to just it could be longitude latitude that's fine uh <laughs> it could be the exact like trailhead well, we give some spots up back in pennsylvania <laughs> yeah, we're okay i'm not saying we're <laughs> <laughs> this is private farm <laughs> Uh, I mean, the place I'm really, I don't, I get, I, I have no qualms and I go to a place that actually a lot of people use. And so I have no issues giving it up. Um, it's, so we, we like to go up by Phillipsburg and, um, that's kind of a fun space for us as a family. And so we've actually been, um, you know, there's the East Fork Reservoir up there and then there's the next road, which is kind of where you go up to Moose Lake. And as you're going up to Moose Lake... Okay, remember that. Moose Lake, everybody. Moose Lake on the left in the woods is... I think it's... Alex is having a hard Like angry calls on surveys. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Granite County is going to be after you. (laughs) It's true. Hey, we're tearing down stereotypes (laughs) right here. That's right. This is for our three folks. Um, (laughs) It's called Carp Lake. And you just get high enough and there's, it, I've seen multiple elk in there. I've never actually taken a shot in there. Um, but it's, it's, the thing I like about it is it's easy terrain. And so you're not having to kind of scale a big hill, although there, you do have to work a little bit, especially in deep snow. Um, and it's just, 
there's some nice kind of paths. There's some nice, mm-hmm. just it's just a nice area in it. It's wooded. It has some lakes. It's pretty. It's, it's teeming with elk. Teeming. teeming uh, depending and on now people and, and now, now people. Yeah. Thousands. That's right. Yeah. Tens of people. The, the, have to we this. should study this, though. We should say this would be a good. Yeah, like is this really a thing? If you talk about your spot, do people go there? That's why I did. I'm doing this because I like one. But I like you messing with people. Yeah, I do yeah. need data, but yeah. I also like messing with folks. Okay. So that <laughs> that's two things I like: data and mess with folks. You should say the next person you interview, and if they say they're not giving up their spot, you should you should have them come give them my number. Give your number and call. And Maybe and you can I'll just always call into this segment from yeah. now on. And just yeah. harass like guess, them a yeah. little bit. <laughs> like, what, you do you like hunting? Yeah. <laughs> Look at the data. 9%, 10% of women. <laughs> Assholes. <laughs> uh, all right. We're going to, the final segment here, it's called first timers. Just a little bit. Let's, we'll get you out in an easy spot. This is presented by federal premium ammunition. And I've been shooting turkeys in the face with their new <laughs> TSS load here recently. Yeah. It's very nice. Yep. Works well. Um, so that's the one with the multiple them. shot size? Yeah. Or, yeah that's well, it's third degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different yeah. shot size. I mean, just Polacks and turkeys lately. It's ridiculous. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Just knocking them right off their feet. Um, but this segment, uh, so thank you, Federal Premium. This segment is uh, where you're going to tell me your first, like, we're, we'll go with, I'll let you pick the first. Yeah, hunting related first. I like to go with first rifle because I feel like that's always a big deal. And then maybe first animal you killed. That's also a big deal. So I'll let, I'll let you, if you have a more interesting one, you can pick it. But let's try those two. Alex, give me a, your first rifle. Hmm. Well, my first rifle was um, a doe whitetail in Pennsylvania um, on opening day, which is... Um, which is an experience. Dude, I'm from Western Maryland. I mean, I know all about it. What, like 1.2 million hunters or something? Uh, that number might be wrong. The but Orange Army. It is the pumpkin patch. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I had just switched over from, uh, I wear glasses. And I, f- I was sick of wearing glasses in the field and I like just got contacts Ooh. like the week before. Brilliant planning. Feeling slick. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so. Yeah, I was up in, in north central Pennsylvania and I was kind of posted outside this this big thicket and uh I got in there, you know, way before way before light and I could there's tons of deer all around. I'm just waiting for first light. Um and yeah, as it started getting lighter, I'm like squinting through my scope and my contact is my contacts are just like itch in my eyes and my eyes are watering and streaming i can't see anything i finally just take the contacts out and throw them on the ground um and right as kind of shooting light came up there was this nice big doe headed into the thicket and pulled the trigger um and uh yeah um how old were you i was actually in grad school i didn't oh, really hunt, so I, yeah big game until grad school so i was that uh, was probably 2003 i don't know Were that solo were you just a solo mission um, I was with a group of guys at a camp up there, but we had kind of split up and had our own spots that we'd scoped out. And, oh yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. very familiar. I grew up in Western Maryland, basically. I mean, we could walk to the Pennsylvania border, and um, I can think of twice where bullets was by my head on opening day. Oh yeah, it was with close proximity. Yeah, to my you know, dome. T- fifteen twenty minutes before shooting light, the shooting begins, and yep, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. Yeah, a couple of times I killed small bucks that already had a few holes in them. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> been through a few things. Slowed him down for you. Slowed him down for him a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a thing. All right. Well, Libby, you have like a first. I, I think it would be you know, breaking the gender stereotype if you told us about your first rifle that you were given 
oh. or purchased or owned. I purchased. I feel like it's very un. Uh, well. Yeah, it's very unceremonial, like in a way. I literally, I I started hunting uh, birds with when I met Alex in Pennsylvania when we first started dating, and uh, I was like getting into hunting then. And he had two really cute dogs that became my dogs. Um, That's actually in my in yeah. sampling, not so much. Say, <laughs> bird dogs, bird dogs, yeah. bird dogs. <laughs> Classic play, Alex. Yeah. I know. I'm a runner, so they were like a perfect match um, to go out and just run with. And um, so when I moved to Montana, I was like, well, geez, I better get into big game hunting. And I, we literally were just driving. I think we were driving through Idaho or going to Spokane. or. Um, oh, yeah. And I just said, let's pull over to Cabela's. <laughs> doing it. I'm doing it. I like that. You're like, let's go. I did. I literally was like, no time like the present. Let's just grab a rifle. And and so I bought my Savage and um, I've only I've only shot one animal with it. And, and one at a time. One at a time. And I shot my first deer on some private land and I was with another woman. And we both shot muleys that day. And we... We had help. We well, we could have had help, but we were like, no, we're gonna we're gonna gut these guys, and we're gonna do it all in the field. And we just started going to town, and the <laughs> landowner came over. You guys seeing the hand waving. Yeah. Yeah. The She's making like a stabbing yeah. motion. That is not the correct motion to be making for getting a deer. Well, I started stabbing it in the gut. <laughs> it um, <laughs> But the private landowner was like, he's like, oh, I have like all these men that come out and they never do this. We just pick it up and leave. And we just said, we just wanted practice, you know, doing it ourselves. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you guys for, for joining me and, and I appreciate your, um, your work here. And the, I would tell you if, if it is any evidence of what your work turns out, the folks that sat in this room with me, the, your students were unbelievable. Um, yeah. these, these are exceptional humans. They are. The fact that they hunt, is maybe tangential to like the fact that they seem to be, uh, their heads are firmly fixed on their shoulders. Yeah, they are. Uh, we have outstanding students in all of our programs here on the College of Forestry. They are they're remarkable human beings. Yeah, yep. That's so, why we do what we do. Yeah, yep. Uh, the, if it's any evidence to like the future of conservation and forestry and wildlife management, we're we'll be in good hands at least around here. Good. <laughs> so well, thanks, guys. Yeah, thank thanks you, for having ben. us. That's it. That is all. Thanks for joining us this week, everyone. Uh, thanks to Alex and Libby and Sam. Thanks to the Black Hills. Thanks to the University of Montana. I love this new format because it, it, it blends like the current, which is where I'm sitting right now in the Black Hills, with the Evergreen, which is uh, the interview with Alex and Libby. It's, just, it's a cool way to combine where I am and where I've been and when mixed together um, topics that sometimes don't touch on each other, but almost always have some relationship. So I'm very um, happy with my myself personally, the new format, but maybe you're not happy with it. Maybe you think it's terrible. <laughs> so please write in and tell me THC at the com. THC at the com, And that stands for the hunting collective. If you're wondering right into that email address, tell me what you think about the new format ask questions, which we will answer on this program, and also record yourself asking a question or making a comment about what you've heard on the podcast. Email it to me. Just do it right on your phone. Just go to notes, talking to the phone, and then hit send to the email at thc at com. 
you do that, I will listen to it. And if it's good enough, if it's under two minutes, it's real clean, we'll put it on the air. Uh, so hopefully we can, you know, in the months and weeks to come here, start putting a bunch of those together and packaging them for you um, as a part, another part of the new format of the podcast. So please write in THC at the com. And what else will I say? I'll say that there's a video out there. Hopefully you'll go watch. You go to the Meat Eater YouTube channel. You also can get there through the Meat Eater social of Stephen Ranella turkey hunting. Um, and he's hunting with me. And it's, it's, it's one of my favorite turkey videos. I think it's got a lot of, lot of, for those of you that aren't turkey veterans, it's got a lot of educational stuff in it. You'll learn how a hunter talks to a turkey and how a turkey talks to a hunter. It's a huge um, a huge production for us. We worked a long time on it, so it's important that you go watch it. So go to the YouTube channel for Meat Eater and look for Steve and my latest turkey hunt. Uh, you're going to love it, I promise. Or if you don't love it, eh, write into THC at TheMeatEater.com. I'm happy to read your opinions either way. So without, with all that done and with this episode done, I'm off to hunt more turkeys, and we'll see you next time on The Hunting Collective. Enjoy. Once again, old number seven. Jack Daniels, old number seven. Tennessee whiskey got me drinking in heaven. And angels start to look good to me. They're going to have to deport me to the fiery deeps. Oh, to the fiery deeps. To the fiery deeps. Oh, to the fiery deeps. Drinking in heaven. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.